Hello everyone and welcome back to Art Holes. My name is Michael Anthony and this is the Art History Podcast with someone who has no business having an art history podcast. I hope everyone's doing well and I'm happy you're back and still listening after five and a half hours of insanity. I'm just glad the last episode didn't scare you off and, and thank you for indulging me. For everyone who signed up for the Patreon, I'm extremely grateful. It makes me feel way better about the decision to not have ads. This is the right way to go. If you'd like to donate, the Patreon link is patreon.com slash artholes. And some people have asked about one-time donations, and I should have thought about that before, and I didn't. And as my sister told me, don't make it difficult for people to give you money, which is great advice. So if you'd like to give a one-time donation instead, you can do that over at PayPal. And the PayPal address is artholespodcast at gmail.com. In those PayPal confirmations, they're going to show up as Kakapo Enterprises DBA Art Holes Podcast. So if you see Kakapo Enterprises, don't freak out, it's still me. That's my company's government name. Kakapos are these giant, goofy, nearly extinct birds in New Zealand, and they can't fly, and their mating calls confuse each other, so that's an issue. They're adorable little messes. It's my favorite animal. I'm still working through the merch page and the charity stuff, so more to come on both fronts. I didn't want to rush it and screw it up, and we got to keep the show moving. And as you know, it takes long enough as it is. Uh, so those will be finalized by next episode. I'm pretty sure next episode. And there's going to be a few merch options now, and they're fun and ridiculous. I'm really excited. And finally, for everyone who's been rating and reviewing the show on whatever app you're using, thank you so much as well. You're giving the show credibility with new listeners, which is huge for a small show with no corporate backing. You're, you're really making a difference, and I really do appreciate it. So thank you. That's it. Not a whole lot of housekeeping this time, so let's get into it. We've got a lot to talk about, more than I originally planned for. I'm sure that's a surprise to no one. Uh, we've got so much ground to cover that I had to split the original episode outline into two episodes. I can't ask another five and a half hours of people. I mean, I'm still going to do it anyway. It's just going to be in separate chunks. It'll be more digestible. The fact that we even had to learn what we did last episode as a foundation for anything really is absurd. Absurd but necessary. Which is more absurd? I mean, fine, yeah, the New Jersey stuff maybe wasn't necessary, but it was fun, and I stand by that. The issue I had last episode, and this one as well, and maybe a bit into the next episode, is that Henri de Toulouse-Lautrec's life is such a unique story to set up that we had to go from this crazy macro history with the Crusades and a revolution to an unimaginably micro history. And the reasons for doing that are who his parents are and who his parents are. From day one, Henri's origin story is contained. It's such a micro-history because we're already in the family, so we won't be pulling from two separate places. It doesn't begin with a Stella and a Leroy or Matilda Sr. and Guillermo-type situation. Now in retrospect, and I can't believe I'm saying this, somewhat normal situations where in a cosmic roll of the dice, two strangers find each other, start a life together, and after a night of passion or a passive sense of obligation, voila, the artist is born. That's not happening here. All of the players are already in the game, and from a certain perspective, I guess, it does make things easier. 
For example, Henri's grandparents, Grandmother Gabrielle and her husband, the Black Prince, Raymond Casimir de Toulouse-Lautrec Manfa, and Grandmother Louise and her husband, Alexandre Tapier de Saint-Laurent. Both of these couples, they know how uncomfortable it is when you meet your future in-laws for the first time. It's, it's awkward. It's usually at like a get-together or a dinner. Nobody likes it. So, they're going to save their kids from that awkward experience. They're going to keep it all in the family. And the only question is, which of these first cousins will exchange fluids in who we'll come to know as mom and dad? If you're already confused as to who's related to who, join the club, my friend. I promise I'll try my best to clarify when possible. Emphasis on try. This family tree is a bramble bush and it's making my head explode. I'm going to post a family tree photo. It's, it's actually two photos together. It's that big and that much of a mess. Just so you can get a sense visually, though I can't promise it'll make things more understandable. It kind of is what it is. But I'm getting ahead of myself. Before all that, we've got to check in with Grandmother Gabrielle and Grandmother Louise to see how they're each handling being newlyweds. And so you can get a sense of timing, we're going to be in the mid to late 1830s, early 1840s for a bit. We'll start down south, where Louise and Alexandre are living down by the Mediterranean at the family's estate in Saint-Laurent, Villa de César. Now you'd think, with the surname Tapier de Saint-Laurent, of Saint-Laurent, that the villa was Alexandre's, but it wasn't. It was a Dubosque property. It's one of eight estates that Louise is set to inherit. One of eight, so you can imagine what we are about to get into. Both geographically and culturally, Saint-Léron is much closer to Barcelona than Paris. Paris is a world away. The family speaks Occitan as much as they speak French. They had their own customs and norms. It's all those regional differences that freaked out the Pope because of the Asian church or whatever that led to the Albigensian Crusades. The Saint-Léron estate is on the outskirts of Narbonne, a few miles from the Mediterranean Sea. And while you couldn't see the water, you could smell the salt in the air, and at night when it was quiet, you could hear the water and the waves crash. The villa itself was built in the 1700s in a classic Mediterranean style. It was three stories tall, had white stone walls with wrought iron balconies, a red tile roof, and had 60 rooms, six zero. It was gigantic. To even get to the villa, you had to travel down a mile-long private dirt road. And then, at the front entrance, there was a large reflecting pool with a fountain and sandy walkways in every direction, bordered by tropical plants, palm trees, aloe, parasol pines, and orange trees. The main property sat, and no, we're not done yet, the main property sat on several hundred acres of their private manicured park, and tucked away in that park was an overgrown cypress grove that encircled a huge lily pond with an arching wooden bridge across. That part of the grounds was like a living Monet painting. It's almost the exact same setup he had in Giverny. Surrounding the villa's hundreds of acres park, and no, we're still not done, was the family's 3,500 acres of farmlands and vineyards that provided some of their passive income. Some of it. 3,500 acres surrounding one property. And we need just a little more context to understand how ridiculous their wealth is, comparatively. 
In Frida episode one, we learned about the Gini index or the Gini coefficient, the measurement of how income or wealth is distributed in a society, with zero being a flat and even society like the Olmecs, and one meaning all the wealth is concentrated at the top, like a Louis XIV situation, with a healthy and successful society, historically speaking, being between 0.3 and 0.5. You don't really want to go over 0.5. The Gini index in France from around this time was just under 0.9, and that's after the revolution. And now with the Bourbon restoration, that number, it's not headed in the right direction. So compared to the tenant farmers handling their 3,500 acres, Louise and Alexandra are doing just fine. They're at the very top, working on some kids and doing whatever fabulously wealthy people do in the south of France in a 60-room villa. And they weren't even the most impressive side of the family. And no, I'm not talking about Blanche. Sure, Jan. The real money and power in this family's future is held by the eldest Dubosc daughter, Gabrielle, and her husband, Raymond Casimir, the Black Prince, the Comte of Toulouse. Gabrielle and Raymond are living a few days' carriage ride north and west at the Chateau du Basque, which everyone calls Le Basque for short. And with Louise inheriting Villa de César, Gabrielle will inherit Le Basque, which is currently owned by their Aunt Josephine. Le Basque is located about 30 miles north of the town of Albi in Aveyron, and it's a castle. There's no other way to describe it. It was built as a medieval fortress by Baranger du Bosque in the year 1180, so the du Bosques, they go back almost as far as the Rouergue dynasty in Toulouse. The castle's gray stone is contrasted by red window shutters, which always had a fresh coat of paint and was described as having a, quote, provincial elegance. The castle's four stories tall, and it's so wide that it plays visual tricks on the mind making it look shorter than it is from the outside. It looks kind of squat. There's also that same effect on the inside, with the ceilings of each floor looking lower than you'd expect, so there's a, a homey and comfortable feel. Each room in Labasque has its own fireplace, and that is a factual statement. I'm just not sure of the implication of the statement. It sounds impressive to me, but I don't know if one fireplace per room is actually impressive, or if it's an inherent feature of the fact that you're living in a castle. I grew up in Schenectady. I don't know anything about castles. But what I do know is, one of the larger fireplaces, the one in the guard's room that was inscribed with the Dubas coat of arms in 1521, that fireplace is so massive, you could roast an entire large deer on a spit, which happened often. Countless animals were harmed in the making of this family. The Toulouse-Lautrec, Manfa, Dubasc, Tapier de Saint-Laurent, all these people, they're part of what's called the Oberau. In English, it's falconers, or like a person of falconry. It's a specific deep country, subgenre nobility, who were so committed to hunting and hunting with birds of prey that falconers just became their nickname. For the Oberau, hunting wasn't like a fun, leisurely activity. It's their very existence, and the interior walls of Labasque were covered in the evidence of that. It's just dripping with mounted heads, an obscene number of dead animal trophies from the legendary hunts of the dynasty's past. This is a lovely room of death. Take care now. Bye-bye then.
The rest of the interior that wasn't stuffed or mounted was Louis Ken's furniture, tapestries, paintings. There's fancy nonsense everywhere. It was decorated like money was no object because it wasn't. When you're this rich, you don't just have a house or a castle. It also has what are called outbuildings, buildings that supported the main building. There were stables and kennels for the animals, a large meat locker for, you know, various kinds of meats, a wash house for laundry, and at some point the estate gets its own chapel for, you know, prayer and Jesus and stuff, but that won't be for a while. Surrounding the main complex was their land, acres upon acres of fields, farms, the same as Villa de Cesar, and a forest called La Gravasse that generations of Dubosc children said was magical. They've got a magical forest. It was country paradise. And again, this is one of their properties. There's also these, like, secondary estates that they either own now or will own over the next few decades. There's the Chateau de Respide outside of Bordeaux, the Chateau de la Haichoise in Brittany, the Chateau and Vineyards at Ricardel, the Chateau du Malamre that'll be used kind of like a recent divorcee property, sort of like when your parents split up and one of them has to get a sad studio apartment ten minutes down the road. It's that but a French chateau. There's also the massive Hotel du Bosque, right in Albi, not to be confused with Le Bosque, which is outside of town. It's a different place. There's apartments in Paris, hunting lodges, and we're going to bounce between a number of these properties over the years to follow everyone. Annoyingly so. They're meandering wanderers. It's another characteristic of the Obero. They don't stay put well. When you take a step back in a 10,000-foot look at their migration patterns, I guess, they'll always circle back to Labasque. It's the center of activity, and there will be activity. There weren't many quiet moments alone. Supporting all those outbuildings and castle functions were chambermaids, scullery maids, laundresses, cooks, kitchen staff, coachmen, horse groomers, stable boys, gameskeepers, gardeners, groundskeepers. There's an army of staff, and without that support, Labasque and the other estates would fall apart. The staff did everything from laundry to changing the beds and making sure the candle and lamp wicks were trimmed and lit. They butchered the meat and did the cooking, the day-to-day -day raising of the kids, for the most part, and overseeing those activities were the women of the house, like Grandmother Gabrielle and Great Aunt Josephine. The men of the family? Yeah, you can piss off with all that nonsense. They hunted. That was their contribution from dawn until dusk, every day weather permitting. Early each morning, the men, the boys who were old enough, whatever visitors were in town, they saddled their horses, the hunting dogs were leashed, and everyone assembled in the castle courtyard to prepare for the hunt. It was pheasants, deer, boar, foxes, rabbits. There were seasonal wolf hunts to reduce their numbers because they kept killing the livestock. And leading these hunts was the new man of the house. Married into money, so let's relax, buddy. Raymond Casimir, the Black Prince, the Comte of Toulouse. Raymond was a stereotypical man of the Languedoc. He was tall, broad-shouldered, and when he mounted a horse, he carried himself with the extreme confidence of someone who's been riding since childhood, and he'd lead the men, hawks, hunting dogs for, I don't know, a few hours, the whole day, maybe into the night. You never knew. 
It could rain or snow or someone could get injured. So you could never just guess when food should be ready. It always had to be out. At 8 in the morning, very punctual, the main dining table at La Basque was bursting. There was, quote, hot and cold beverages, salt victuals and sweet, meat pate and crust, venison, cold cuts, game birds and wine jelly, perfect goose livers and their golden fat larded with truffles, butter and cheese, preserves and honey, unquote. Honestly, it sounds like a wonderful existence if you don't give a shit about anybody else but yourselves in the Obero lifestyle or vegetables. I didn't hear one leafy green thing mentioned amidst the truffle fat lard cold cuts and gee, their ankles and feet must be really puffy. It's hunting, delicious rich food, trips to the spas with healing water that cured your various maladies, living off a passive income while you bounced between your estates. And as joyful as it is that you love the trappings of nobility, and I'm happy for you on your behalf or whatever, you do have responsibilities. Well, a responsibility. Singular. Continuing that lifestyle and not being the generation who ends it was predicated on having a next generation to pass your estates to. Otherwise, they'd be dispersed to distant relatives or worse, the state. Or worse than that, God forbid, poor people. And that meant having kids. Your job was to procreate. Grandmother Gabrielle and Raymond at La Basque, and Grandmother Louise and Alexandra at Villa de César, they had responsibilities to keep the lines going. They need to fill their homes with children so that one day those children grow up and marry and then fill their homes with children, ideally in a way that helps everyone maintain their status. No marrying poor people. And there will be plenty of kids. We call them the grandmothers for a reason. So let's talk about this next generation, the children of the Dubosk sisters. I hate to be a buzzkill here, but we should probably start with Blanche, the grandmother's other sister, because at the risk of sounding indelicate, it's the shortest part of the story. None of her kids make it. It's super sad, and it might be why we don't really know much about Blanche. She's an aristocratic woman with no surviving children. She's not a Madonna or a whore, so history kinda says why bother. You're either the mother of the next great man, or you're a con artist courtesan who steals a necklace with another sex worker named Nicole. And even when you get kind of a happy end to your story, you get chased off a balcony, hit a tree, your eyeball pops out, the left one, and now history remembers both you and Nicole. I'm not saying it's right, it's just from my admittedly novice perspective, it seemed to be how history was written until like 2017. The most we get about Blanche is from the explanatory footnote section of the Julia Fry biography, pages 518 to 519, footnoting page 14, referencing details about where some of the relatives lived. Quote, The third sister of the grandmothers, Blanche, lived elsewhere, but visited the other sisters regularly. Unquote. So we know Blanche existed, lived somewhere, and visited people. This all tracks. Women's stories were told through the lens of who they married or who they birthed. So we know more about Grandmother Gabrielle and Grandmother Louise because they fared better in those departments. And when it comes to Louise and Gabrielle's kids, it doesn't make sense for us to talk about them in chronological birth order between the two because of how confusing this eventually gets. We first need to firmly establish who's on whose team before they muddy the waters by blowing each other and then start popping out a bunch of kids. 
So for now, let's go sister by sister, and then we can talk about them all together as the story evolves. Okay, so between our two grandmothers, we'll start with Gabrielle and Raymond Casimir, since Raymond has the Comte of Toulouse title and Gabrielle is the eldest Dubosque daughter. They also married first. Back then, you didn't wait to have kids while you both concentrate on your career aspirations and plan a trip to Machu Picchu together. They didn't have careers. Children were their careers, and they got right to work. In 1838, a year after they were married, Gabrielle gave birth to a baby boy. They got an heir to the title on their first try. They named him Alphonse Charles, or Alphonse for short, but everyone called him Alf. Two years later, they had another boy named Charles Antoine Bertrand, or Charles. And two years after that, in 1842, another son named Odon, all good Ruerge dynasty names. Three boys in a row? That's an aristocratic godsend. With infant mortality rates as they were, three boys still put you in a strong position for one of them to inherit title, a ceremonial title for now, sure, but in two, five, fifteen years, who knows? For the next couple of years, Labasque was buzzing, the staff helping Gabrielle and Raymond to raise their three boys in the way of the Oberau, teaching them to read and speak in Occitan, French, English, familiarizing them with the hunting dogs and horses, dinner parties with a revolving door of upper crusty types coming through, but something was missing. With three sons running around, Labasque had a lot of dude energy. Gabrielle and Raymond, they considered having one more child with the hope that it would be a little girl. They wanted a daughter. It could be expensive since there's still this weird dowry situation in France, and I don't think I was clear about this distinction last episode. Women could inherit property, yes, but when they got married, they gave up legal rights to that property to their husbands. The dude still ran the show. Still, they're ungodly rich and they could afford to have a daughter, and if they marry her off to the right man, she could pay for herself in the long run. So why not give it a shot? It's always good to think of a child transactionally as a long-term investment. It's super healthy. In 1846, Gabrielle and Raymond got their wish. Eight-year-old Alphonse, six-year-old Charles, and four-year-old Odon welcomed a baby sister, Alex Blanche, or just Alex. Named after the Alex, the Vicomtess of Lautrec, who married Baudouin, an ode to the beginning of the Toulouse-Lautrec lineage. And also, Blanche. Gabrielle and Raymond's was now a proper noble family at Labasque, and that was, ironically, the scariest part. They had the world at their fingertips. They're primed for a resurgence. They've got sons to inherit title, a daughter to use as leverage and marry to a proper suitor. And that damn Napoleonic code, it puts everything at risk. They are one or two bad marriages away from being, I mean, it's not like they won't be fantastically wealthy still, but they're one or two bad marriages away from giving up on the Toulouse-Lautrec dynasty. Unless. Unless. Down in Saint-Léron, in Mediterranean paradise, Louise and Alexandre were working hard at their job. In 1841, three years after Gabrielle's son Alphonse was born, Louise had a daughter, Adèle Margaret Zoe. Adèle, named after Adelaide de Béziers, the original Alex de Lautrec's mother. 
Also, Adelaide de Maurienne, who married Louis VI and kept his reign afloat so it didn't collapse because he was a moron. Okay, that was mean. He was ineffective. And Adelaide d'Anjou, who was married to Raymond III until he died, and then she married King Louis V and became queen until he died from... <laughs> Adelaide d'Anjou was married upwards of five times, maybe? Nobody's really sure, and had as many as... 11 kids? Question mark? Again, not sure. It was 11th century record-keeping. The point is, Adelaide, Adelaise, Adele, there's a ton of derivations from early French history. It's a powerful name for a powerful woman, and now Louise and Alexandre Tapier de Saint-Laurent have a daughter to carry that name. Then in 1844, Louise gave birth to a son, Amade Marc. Oh, hi, Marc. Completing the Tapier de Saint-Laurent family down in their Mediterranean paradise. Okay, we're done. I promise. Well, we're done for now. And that was quite a bit to throw at everybody, and don't worry, there's not going to be a quiz. I'm going to go through a quick roll call of Louise and Gabrielle's kids, but before I do the roll call, I should explain why the original episode got split into two episodes. These two generations, they will play a major role in this series, Henri's grandparents and his aunts and uncles, and then the next generation, his cousins, the whole bramble bush. Some might call it an inappropriately outsized influence, but who am I to judge? Plus, there's the whole incest thing, and spoiler alert, there's gonna be a lot of it, so we really need to anchor ourselves now as to how everyone's related, so we can accurately assess just how gross this is. We're in a strange place where the only defense for what happens next is, uh, I mean, at least he's not my brother. Rosario. Alberto. Rosario. All right, here's the rundown. At Labasque, Gabrielle and Raymond have their eldest son and heir to the title, Alphonse, then its sons Charles, Odon, and daughter Alex. Down at Villa de César, Louise and Alexandra have Adele and Amade. And as much as they live their own separate lives on these properties that really have to be run like businesses, everyone is often together for like weeks and months at a time. I'm not sure that I wouldn't lose my mind after a while. I mean, imagine being on a family vacation with your parents, aunts, uncles, cousins, maybe their cousins, only it's for like two months. I don't know about you, but if that were my family, after month one, we'd be trying to strangle each other. At any given point at these chateaus, it could be Gabrielle and Raymond and Louise and Alexandra and their kids, Blanche, who's in town from somewhere, I, I don't know. And then there's extended relatives who are incessantly in the picture, like Alexandra's sister Elizabeth and her husband Charles Boulet, and all their brood, a few of which will become key characters too, but I'm going to save them for next episode so we're not overwhelmed. The point is, they all raise their kids the same way, in a tight-knit circle, presenting them with carbon copy experiences as they had, and their parents, and their parents before them, and theirs before them, so on and so on, for hundreds and hundreds of years, limiting their exposure to the outside world whenever possible. And by the outside world, I mean, of course, all the dirty pores. 
The objective wasn't growth or evolution or wanting your kids to thrive in whatever world they're born into. It was about protecting the one you and your ancestors were born into, the Obero, with no regard for consequences. And there will be consequences. There always are. Their nomadic existence and weird migration patterns generally happen seasonally. It was summer at Labasque, maybe part of the winter at Villa de César, with weeks at a time at some random hunting lodge or in Paris, and they were always together. Since some of these trips could take forever in a horse and wagon, and this is before trains, sometimes you'd stay for a couple of months and then go home for five months, and three months into you being home, your sister's family comes and stays with you, and sometimes Blanche would show up. I guess, I don't know, according to one footnote, Blanche would show up. So the cousins, this generation of cousins, Alphonse, Charles, Odon, Alex, Adele, Amade, like the centuries of cousins before them, they spent their childhoods together. They were tutored together, they explored La Gravasse Forest and told stories of the mythical creatures who lived there. Not very Catholic of them, the adults got real mad and scolded them when they heard such blasphemous tales. And they went to the kennels to see the newborn puppies. When it rained or was too cold, they played with the same worn-out deck of cards that had been at Labasque for generations. Or Bagatelle, an early tabletop game that's a, a cross between billiards and a pinball machine. They were kids and they had a lot of fun. They grew up on these massive estates and there was adventure everywhere. They had a blast together. It shouldn't be surprising to hear, though, that as soon as they reached a certain age, boys and girls had a vastly different experience at the chateaus. The girls were expected to be replicates of their mothers, well-behaved, quiet, pious, and demure. They learned to run household budgets, plan christenings and weddings. They were daughters of Christ. And if something in your life bothered you, it was expected that you'd keep your mouth shut about it. As the eldest daughter of this new generation, Adele was looked to to set the tone and continue the standards for her generation of women. Standards that aligned precisely with the church's expectations of noble Catholic girls in France. She should exhibit, quote, Piety, gravity, devotion to duty, and the bringing up of children, resignation, acceptance of one's lot, and finding consolation from prayer. Unquote. So comply, shut your yap, and maybe when you die, maybe, God'll have an answer for why you had no rights and your day-to-day -day existence was unbearably dull. That's what Adele was raised to do, her and her cousin Alex. Like their mothers and their mothers before them, God'll explain why your existence sucked. We've been here before. Adele's story is, to an extent, Matilda Sr.'s story. It's Stella's, it's Maria Picasso's, and I don't mean to sound reductive and say that their lives were all the same. They lived unique experiences, sure, but not as unique as they could be, though. Adele grew up as society dictated she should. She was raised to be pious, modest, and reserved. She was educated, very much so. Aristocratic girls were educated, unlike the rest of girls in France. The education gap amongst girls in France was like the wealth gap. It was an all-or-nothing type thing. The difference was it was less dangerous to educate aristocratic women. That was my takeaway. They had more of a, I guess, vested interest in the system. It's not like you wanted to empower them or anything. I mean, come on, don't be insane. But somebody had to do all the work while the men hunted. It was a trade-off. 
So Adele learned to read and write in Occitan, French, English, I believe Greek and Latin too. She learned history and math, to sing and do needlepoint. She learned to run a household and keep a staff. Sorta, we'll get into it, doesn't always go well. And above all else, she helped care for the children, whatever cousins, nieces, or nephews she's around. And I'm sure we are well past the need for a spoiler alert. Adele Dubosc Tapier de Saint-Léron, eldest daughter of the Dubosc dynasty. This is Mom. As a young woman, Adele was described as modest, reserved, and meticulous. Exceedingly pretty, Adele is very attractive, and a pious, devout Catholic. She loves her some Jesus, and was raised in the image of the Madonna. She resented it, not the Jesus part, she was all about Jesus. She resented being forced into that role, being reduced to a future Madonna. She despised it. When someone pissed her off or hurts her feelings, she shuts down and leans into the Madonna role even further, almost as if to prove a point. If that's all you expect of me, okay, that's all I'll be to you and nothing more. And then wham, the emotional door is shut. When she got angry or felt slighted, she quote, retreated into icy dignity and sanctimonious martyred silence, unquote. That's resentment right there. Pretty clearly so, and maybe I recognize it so easily because of the resentment that I've generated in relationships. But enough about me. In her case, understandably so, for being told that you're not supposed to be your own person. You're supposed to be the Madonna, mother to the wee baby Jesus. And the shittiest part is, she can't be the Madonna. No one can. It's an unattainable standard, so no matter what, you're destined to be considered a failure, even if you're 99% Madonna. Nobody's 100% of anything. We're infinitely complicated beings, and so is Adele. She's really smart. She's, I don't know, I'd call it crafty, maybe, or strategically sound, sometimes with good intentions, sometimes selfish intentions. She's resilient, with a capacity for profound love, and sometimes, yeah, okay, sometimes she can be a real asshole. And even if you reduce her to that binary construct, which I hate to do, but it's how things were, and purely for the sake of an intellectual exercise, let's just start there. It's a thought experiment. If the construct itself is an unattainable goal, and Adele can only ever be 99% Madonna, that means by default she's 1% whore. And yeah, I mean, look, Adele has needs. She does. Most of us do. It's one of our driving biological forces. Having needs makes you human. And it's safe to say that Adele is definitely human. I'll post a photo of Adele from when she's in her early 20s. It's the beginning of photography itself. And in this photo, okay, this is just my personal observation, Adele doesn't exactly have an I'm on my way to the convent look on her face. And I'm not criticizing. I'm supportive. All I'm saying is, if you're on a date and you see that look across the table, dinner's going well. And you shouldn't say or do anything stupid to mess it up. Someone once said of Adele that she, quote, couldn't resist a pair of red riding trousers, unquote. Red being the color of the uniform pants for the military. And good for her. Let's not yuck someone's yum. If she's really into red riding pants, it's kind of specific, but all right, do your thing. 
Having passion doesn't make you a whore, and Adele has passions. And it's, that's a good thing too, since she's gotta find a husband and have a child. Too sweet. I mean, if getting pregnant is your occupation, if you enjoy the process, then all the better. The question is, where will Adele's passions be directed? Her options are limited, intentionally, when you're an insular people who don't engage outside your social class and spend time primarily with each other, you're limiting everyone's romantic options, something that I don't think that I would recommend. You can't marry who you don't know exists, and you can't let your parents down. And besides, they control the entire region, and you as well, so you kinda have to take their direction. There was one young man who Louise and Alexandra would approve of, someone who's of appropriate status and whose parents would approve of her, a marriage that both sets of parents had actually hoped for, planned for, and it just so happens it was a young man that Adele had her eye on for a while now. For how long? I don't know, and frankly, I'd rather not think about it. Like his father before him, he was the archetype of a 19th century obero, a man of the Languedoc, with a thick black beard, a broad chest, was described as, quote, dashing, and who looked fucking great in a pair of red riding pants. Mm, just a dump truck of an ass with some, some thick ass thighs filling out those pants. Grandmother Gabrielle and Raymond Casimir's eldest son, the future Comte of Toulouse, and Adele's cousin. Alphonse. Alf to those closest to him, or as we'll get to know him, Dad. Buckle up, everybody. I got a bad feeling on this one, alright? I mean, I got a bad feeling. Okay, so let's talk about Dad. Alf is a descendant of the Ruerge lineage, a future Comte, the equivalent of a local prince when the monarchy's in resurgence, with no functional responsibilities, or expectations, or accountability, or scruples. His personality. Okay, I considered saying it's exactly as you'd imagine it would be, but I'm gonna go out on a limb and say it's worse. Most of you won't like Alphonse very much. Remember last episode when I mentioned a Toulouse-Lautrec who lamented the good old days when the comps of Toulouse could sodomize a monk and then hang him after? Yeah, that would be Alphonse. That's dad. Alf's childhood and adolescence was, as you'd imagine, one of privilege. He's given all the best tutors, and he's not exactly a focused student. His true passion, more than anything, was being outdoors in nature with animals, whether it was fishing, hunting, riding horses, especially horses. Time not spent on a horse was time wasted, and it wasn't being on horseback for the sake of the hunt. He did enjoy hunting, in his own way, we'll get to that too. He just loved being on a horse, racing and riding for hours on end, casual trail excursions, training the horses, whatever it was, as long as he could saddle up. Alphonse is known for being able to wear out three horses per day. He just couldn't stop. It was the feeling of connecting with such a powerful and graceful animal through the fields and the forests, conquering nature with the horse as a physical and emotional extension of the self. Apparently, so I've been told. 
There are some people who, for whatever reasons, truly bond with horses. I hear they're very emotionally complex animals or something. As you know, I'm not one of these people. I want to be, but I can't get past the image of that big rubber catch tube and there was so much and it was so violent. I'm trying to channel Alf's love as best I can. I'm really trying. Okay, let's do it this way. It's simpler. Think of a thing that you love, something you're really passionate about. He loves horses more. Full stop. And it wasn't just horses. He loved the hunting dogs, and not for what they brought to the hunt. He loved the dogs themselves. He's into the breeding, raising, and training of puppies, and he loved the falcons. They're birds of prey. Look, Alf just wants to be outside with the animals, man. He's outdoorsy. He embraced the leisure activities of the aristocracy, and he wasn't great or even close to being good with structure or responsibility or moderation. Whatever Alf's appetites were, they were satiated. When you picture adult Alphonse, you might have a certain image in your mind, based on his physicality. A stoic man, his father's son and future taciturn leader of the Languedoc, broad-shouldered, bearded on a horse and mm, in them pants, a presence. And you'd be right to think that, until you see his eyes. It's in his eyes where we really get to meet Dad. There was a, a mischievous, unpredictable twinkle in Alphonse's eyes that gave him away. Quote, his bright brown eyes had the expression of a charming, intelligent squirrel, reflecting a flaw in the image of this model of courage. Unquote. Alphonse is a wild card. He marched to the beat of his own drum, regardless of social norms or familial pressures. Alf was born of entitlement, taken to the extreme, even for a Toulouse-Lautrec. He'll be the point of frustration for many loved ones over many, many years. As he came into his own as a young man, he was described as, quote, totally maddeningly undisciplined, completely unable to plan for the future or to complete the projects he undertook, unquote. Alf was smart, maybe too smart for his own good. He just couldn't pull it all together. He was accepted into the Sancerre Military College, France's prestigious military academy, and with his riding skills and social status, was placed in the cavalry, making it to second lieutenant in the 6th Regiment of Mounted Lancers. He was known throughout the French military. He was famous for his steeplechase and horse-jumping skills, not necessarily for his skill as a soldier. The cavalry itself, the equestrian part of the army that you saved in reserve, for emergencies, it had a reputation for being where rich people served. It was made up of the well-bred men who happened to grow up riding horses. I'm not a military expert, as you all know, but I think if you ask the infantry in the front lines how they felt about the cavalry and when they were needed versus actually deployed, they might have an opinion or two. For Alphonse, though, given his position in society, joining the military was a given. If you had any shot at marrying up or even keeping the respect of other nobility, you had to have a proper military rank, regardless of who was in charge. So for the societal optics alone, he's got to squeeze those thick-ass man-thighs into some red uniform pants and at least symbolically acknowledge, if called upon, he'd give the ultimate sacrifice in battle. That is a noble theoretical position to take, but as far as how Alf's service went in practice, well, that's a different story. As someone who's described as a resolute nonconformist, the regimented life of the military became, quote, 
constitutionally impossible. He didn't have it in him. The military's regimented for a reason, and Alf can't focus. He's taken by the wind, whichever way it blew. And beyond that, he has no respect for authority, or rules, or structure. Over the course of his military career, he'll spend a combined 132 days detained in military jail for offenses such as, quote, sketching at inappropriate times, being perpetually out of uniform, and playing frivolous tunes on a bugle. Unquote. Eccentric is the word most often used to describe Alphonse. He's eccentric and unfazed by the concepts of public embarrassment or appearing ridiculous. Alf lived in a world of whimsy, all to his own. When he wasn't steeplechase racing with his army horse or in prison for playing frivolous tunes on a bugle, Alf's favorite time in the military was the weekend, when he and the other young officers spent their free time in Paris, carousing, partying, just having a ball. It's been a while since we talked about Paris. We stayed away because the story didn't necessitate it. We haven't been missing out on much, though. There objectively hasn't been a reason to check in on Paris itself, as a city, until recently, because it hadn't changed much, for centuries, more or less by design. Now that Alf's spending his weekends there, we're going to start dipping our toes back in the water before we ultimately end up here full-time. So this is a good opportunity to take a break, little detour from our main story so we can get to know Paris, almost as a character itself, to see what it's been up to. Up until Napoleon, none of the kings had a vested interest in truly modernizing Paris itself, as a city, because it would empower the most dangerous part of their constituency. It's why Versailles was built. Napoleon was at least smart enough to rule from Tuileries Palace, and he did make some attempts to modernize the city, but not like wholesale infrastructural changes. He was too busy with outward expansion. So Paris has been more or less a medieval city. There weren't event-driven reasons to rebuild, like Moscow's fire, or immediate economic reasons, like London needing room for its industrializing economy. And with the monarchy back in power, moving forward isn't a priority. That's not what the Bourbon Restoration's about. We don't need wider streets or larger communal spaces for you all to congregate into mobs and get all whipped up into a frenzy, and then you want to fight. I hate when we fight. Why would I want more of that? Things used to be so good between us before all that drama. Remember? Remember how amazing our trip to Costa Rica was before we had that big argument and you told me you didn't trust my parents and I might have implied that the book you wanted to write about love or your travel adventures or whatever was kind of derivative and uninteresting? Let's hit reset to before that night. Louis XVIII, he had no interest in the evolution of Paris, a city he resented for murdering most of his living relatives. And he's got bigger concerns, like the Restoration. So he's out, and his successor, the next king, certainly did not. Louis XVIII died in 1824 with no kids, so his younger brother and good friend of Pisspons, Charles X, became king. Charles X was an asshole of the highest order. He was an ultra-monarchist and was originally sort of like Louis XVIII's henchman. He was a real dick. 
Charles X was never supposed to be king, so when he was crowned, he saw it as divine intervention and an opportunity to prove himself and be the second coming of Louis XIV, the Sun King. So that's alarming. On top of that, his son got assassinated in 1820, so he was really pissed off about that. And rightfully so, I get it, but he overcorrected and ruled with an iron fist. He stripped away freedom of press, local elections. He legit thought he ruled by divine right and threw gas in the fire of the restoration. Charles X got so mad with power that when people were finally fed up and the July Revolution happened in 1830 to overthrow this epic douchebag, even his most ardent supporters kind of backed away. Charles X was universally hated, and he was exiled during the Revolution. He did have another living son, though, Louis, who was the disputed king for... 20 whole minutes as Louis XIX until he agreed to be exiled along with Dad. In my personal record book, I don't count him as a Louis because he was never gonna be king. He just had a tantrum for 20 minutes before realizing they'd kill him too if he didn't leave. Charles X also had a grandson, Henri, from the son who was assassinated in 1820, but Henri was only 10 years old in 1830, too young, so the crown instead went to Charles's fifth cousin, now King Louis-Philippe I, who agreed to a substantially more liberal constitutional monarchy. Which brings us back to Paris itself, a city that by 1830 was, for lack of a better term, fucking disgusting. It's a grimy cesspool, I guess that's a better term, and it's about to cause the new king a real problem. There's a famous description of the city from around this time, quote, Paris is an immense workshop of putrefaction, where misery, pestilence, and sickness work in concert, where sunlight and air rarely penetrate. Paris is a terrible place, where plants shrivel and perish, and where, of seven small infants, four die during the course of the year. Unquote. Even with the sky-high infant mortality rates, though four in seven is likely a slight exaggeration, it's still densely populated and growing, with around 850,000 people in 1832, nearly double the population from 1789. That's a lot for a city that's structurally the same. Medieval cities, like Paris still was, tend to have narrow streets, with people living on top of one another, in ramshackle housing, with poor drainage, throwing sewage into gutters in the middle of the street, and there's a general disregard for municipal hygiene. If you lived in Paris, you're basically breathing into each other's mouths and covered in each other's bodily waste. It's the type of environment that led to the plague in Caravaggio, only this time it wasn't Yersenia pestis. It was cholera. In March 1832, cholera was still new to Europe, so Parisian doctors didn't fully understand what was happening when the first patients came to them with fever, extreme irritability, or as they called it, apoplexy, profuse watery diarrhea, and vomiting. Then more people came in, and more, and more, and soon the hospitals were overrun with feverish, vomity people with explosive diarrhea who were dying within days. 
Initially, health officials said there's nothing to worry about. And if people took precautions like, and these are actual doctor's orders, a hot bath infused with vinegar, salt and mustard, some lime tea, and a sensible diet, there'd be no epidemic. Within six months, upwards of 20,000 people died in Paris of cholera, death by diarrhea. The 1832 cholera epidemic spread worldwide. It was exceptionally bad in large cities with unsanitary water and food supplies and streets covered in cholera-ridden diarrhea, like New York, London, and Paris. After the epidemic, people realized that the layout of Paris itself contributed to cholera spreading, you know, with everyone breathing in each other's mouths while walking down narrow streets covered in each other's shit. So the city would need a makeover so it didn't happen again. Again, great in theory, but in practice, not so much. The monarchy's barely holding on. Louis-Philippe I is a half-king, so demolishing Paris and rebuilding it so people didn't live like animals? Yeah, I mean, ideally you would do it, but it wasn't financially or politically viable, especially as his government continued to weaken. So Louis-Philippe I was like, yeah, 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 we'll get to it. In 1848, the monarchy fell for the last time. The Bourbon Restoration was a failed experiment. It wouldn't last forever. It was destined to fail. That time in Europe, the age of the monarchs, it was over. Sometimes you gotta let that relationship go. I don't care how good the sex was. Eventually you break up again for good. Because once you say things to each other like, if only you made more money, you'd be perfect. Or, of course you've made me laugh before, I just can't think of a specific instance when you put me on the spot like this. Is this about the eat, dream, love book thing again or whatever it was? It feels like it's about the book. Once you say stuff like that to each other, it's pretty much over, even if you don't realize it at the time. And besides, Europe can't save France's monarchy again. The entire continent was dealing with their own 1848 revolutions, which spread from kingdom to kingdom to kingdom. It was a continental-wide revolution. With its brand new Second French Republic, France would finally have a leader who could modernize Paris to compete with London when they elected a man of vision, a man of resolve, an intellectual, worldly man who promised, cross his heart, hope to die, promised not to go to the extremes like the country's first president did, with whom he shared his great name. It's Napoleon III. We cannot get rid of these fucking guys. They're like weeds. Napoleon III wasn't the son of Napoleon II, who died young of tuberculosis, without his father's penis. He's the son of O.G. Napoleon's younger brother, Louis. He wasn't a true Louis, though. He was called Louis, but he was born Luigi. I'm a Luigi, number one. Napoleon III had broad support as this new and improved iteration of his uncle, and he enjoyed being president of this new republic. He loved his job so much that he didn't want to step down when the Constitution of 1848 said his term would be over. Democracy is it's overrated. So in 1851, Napoleon III pulled a coup and declared himself emperor exactly like he promised he wouldn't. Under now Emperor Napoleon III, the Second French Empire re-established itself as a global superpower through typical Napoleon stuff. Colonialism, consolidating power, and crushing dissent, authoritarianism, you know, the huge. 
As the emperor, he could finally ignore political and social costs and unilaterally demand an overhaul of Paris. Fix it, because I said so. And, and it worked. I'm not saying the means justify the ends, far from it, but you can't ignore the fact that Napoleon III was responsible for the wholesale modernization of the city. To be fair, though, it's not like he had much of a choice. After a second cholera outbreak in 1848 killed another 20,000 people, overpopulation, narrow streets that couldn't accommodate carriages, so they were forced onto the few that could, causing excessive traffic, ongoing minor revolts, there was no flow to the city, no airflow, no people flow. It was a stagnant city, hot, damp, and still. Napoleon III commissioned George Hausmann to completely renovate the city, a total rebuild. We don't have a Toulouse-Lautrec series without the Hausmann renovation of Paris. Shit, we don't have a Paris without Hausmann's renovation. Hausmann's work began in the early 1850s, and it'll continue for, God, decades, in three major phases. And when it comes to large-scale municipal projects like this, whatever your criticisms are on the concepts of, I don't know, heartless gentrification and mass displacement of the poor, abusive labor practices, shady financing, cronyism, sweetheart deals, all that stuff, there are valid criticisms here. It was bad. Hausmann approached the renovation of Paris with a ruthless determinism that'll be his ultimate downfall. Eventually. But not today. For now, in the early stages of the renovation, Hausmann focused on the center of the city, tearing down the labyrinth of shoddy buildings, building long and wide boulevards to open up airflow and traffic patterns and connect the city as a whole. He designed massive parks and green spaces and rebuilt the Gare du Nord train station to churn trains in and out of the city. By 1860, Paris was the center of a web of railways that reached the four corners of the country. Crossing the country for both people and trade goods was now feasible within a reasonable amount of time. To make room for all this activity, Paris couldn't stay the same size. The city needed to expand. Per Napoleon III's decree, in 1860, 11 surrounding communities, and parts of 14 more, were formally annexed into the city, including in the far northern part, high up on a hill, a small, sleepy village that'll now be Paris's 18th arrondissement, waiting to be turned into a haven for bohemian artists, musicians, poets and writers, actors and dancers, Montmartre. The idea of Montmartre, the concept of the neighborhood, its place in art history, in world history, it's another reason why this series will be a little bit different than the others. It'll still be about Toulouse-Lautrec as a person and his work, for sure. That part won't change. It's the way he interacts with his surroundings and the people around him, his city, his neighborhood, and how that feeds into his art. It's why I find it so interesting. It's Dispassionate's the wrong word. It's not dispassionate. Far from it. It's full of empathy and a sense of caring in a way that can make people be intimately seen. But I guess it can also be distant and removed with a dash of aloofness, even cynicism, for really complex reasons that we'll explore. Without Montmartre, its people, its unique culture, there's nothing for him to capture artistically and say what he wants to say how he wants to say it. 
Again, I don't want to get ahead. We're still a decade or so until Montmartre is on the doorstep of being Montmartre, a bastion of creativity, sex, parties, shows, the whole thing. The path to getting there and understanding the artists who built the neighborhood and their work and how it leads to Henri, it's kind of a wild ride, and it'll take us some time to build toward. We'll cover some now and some toward the end of next episode. So before we get back to our main story of Alphonse and Adele, we're going to do that. We've got some catching up to do on France's artistic and cultural evolution. It's the second half of our Russian nesting doll of a detour, until we get back to Alf's activities in Paris. France has had an interesting few decades artistically. We spent so much time last episode with Evan Latimer and Piss Ponds that I had to check my notes to see the last time we even talked about the arts in France in any substantive way. My gut told me it was Napoleon's empire style, with a curving bulge of leadership and it was smaller than I thought it'd be in person, and he's on the money, it's all his vision, a celebration of the greatest man. We didn't even get too far into his empire style, but there were paintings of his coronation, Roman-style busts, he's wearing those laurel wreaths on his head, it's all very ancient Greek and Roman, intellectual great men, our societal daddies, deserving our reverence. And that is not where we left off. No, we had an artistic coda of nonsense. We learned about Casimir Cabanier's portrait of Neil Campbell with a modernized background with the ships and the ocean and the chair made of birds. That's how forgettable Neil is. Even I forgot about him. I was tricked by my own narrative device. The creative arts in France have been, to a great extent, repressed due to that hyper-focus on the individual. Ever since Louis XIV's God Complex, then Louis Ken's turning France into one giant crusty sock through Napoleon's empire style. It's been 200 years of the desires and the propaganda for these great men and their accomplishments and their dicks. We did get a brief reprieve with neoclassicism, and look what happens when you open up artistic expression to more than just a single person and you tell stories. It can spawn a revolution. Then Napoleon's empire style seized neoclassicism and took it to the extreme, with a lot of the main themes of balance and order and intellectualism, celebrating what's reasonable, and combined it with narcissism and fluffed-up bulges. In that part, the fluffed-up bulges, it sucks. It's a bastardization of neoclassicism. But even with Napoleon's empire style, those concepts of logic, reason, I mean, theoretically at least, they were still the main focus. And not that there's anything wrong with reason. I love reason. Reason, logic, a well-constructed argument. I mean, peer-reviewed research is like porn for me. It's just that it's not all we are. As humans, we are more than just logic and reason. And if you try to cram reason and logic down people's throat as the be-all, end-all, you're going to get some pushback. So while the reasoned and logical movement of neoclassicism evolved into Napoleon's empire style in the early 1800s, the seeds of that artistic counterbalance, they were already in the works. There were critics. As beneficial as neoclassicism was for democracy, and it's also visually balanced and beautiful and it can be inspirational, sure, there's an element of elitism to it. 
this idea that you need to be well-read in ancient Greek and Roman philosophy or history to appreciate the genius of someone like Jacques-Louis David and why his art and the people depicted in that art should be celebrated. Like the great Socrates, the founder of Western philosophy with his masterful approach to critical thought, who drank poison hemlock rather than denounce his beliefs. And the three Roman brothers in the Oath of Herodii, who did some stuff too, I guess, I don't know, who fucking knows that? Why is this inspiring? Who in 1784 France is reading the ancient Greek and Roman sagas to even understand what these paintings are about at a time when literacy rates were a dumpster fire? Who are these brothers? What was their oath about? Why should we care about this? Was this like a, a 300 situation? This is Sparta! To even understand the artistic theories of neoclassicism, you gotta have like this collegiate level knowledge of history before you can even get to the emotional part. It limited people from being able to fully access the feelings that the painting is trying to evoke. And also, think about the crazy stuff we've been learning about. I mean, how are people reasonable in the early 1800s? Whether you're a monarchist who saw your friend Madame du Barry humiliated in the Place de Révolution as she begged for just one more second to live. Quote, one more moment, Mr. Executioner, I beg you, before the guillotine blade came down. Or you're a revolutionary who's pitchforking someone for a crust of bread because your children have been breathing shallower and shallower each day. We're doing reason right now? Really? How is there reason when we're living in a time when capturing someone's capital city during war has forever been a checkmate, since there's been capital cities, countries, and war? And now the Russians set Moscow on fire. They burned their capital to the fucking ground. And that's how they won. Between the revolution, counter-revolutions, continental wars, Napoleonic War, reparations, an evolving national identity, dealing with the Bourbon Restoration, and another goddamn Louis and another Napoleon, the first few decades of the 1800s were full of crazy emotional highs and lows. The phrase I saw often was, a time of turbulent passions. All those paintings and sculptures of reason, intellectualism, balance, they don't capture the emotionality of what's happening. In a time of turbulent passions, don't you want to actually feel those passions? Who gives a shit about reason? Sometimes you just want to feel, whatever it is, ecstatic, terrified, hopeful, surprised, fucking furious, because it's inherently human to do so. Feelings and emotions, besides being a rush, they propel us forward. And whether you're a monarchist or a revolutionary, we're all human and we all feel things. And we shouldn't need reason as a gatekeeper to passion. That emotion-forward approach and why I'm all jacked up right now, it's the main theme of the next major art movement in France, Romanticism. Trying to find an agreed-upon start date for Romanticism is like nailing jello to the wall. Different dates are thrown around depending on people's arguments and theories. It's very frustrating. We could be looking at as early as the 1780s, but it's generally agreed that the movement is formally defined and the theories are crystallized with a woman named Germaine de Stal, who introduced and defined Romanticism to the broader French population with her 1813 book on Germany. 
Germaine was a well-known and respected intellectual and French theorist. She was famous for being a brilliant conversationalist with an uncanny ability to play with language, and when she attended parties in the salons of Paris, she'd wear crazy outfits and she pushed boundaries and buttons. Germaine seems like a lot of fun. That she even had access to an education and French intellectual circles is probably explained by her original name, Anne-Louise Germaine Necker. She happens to be the daughter of Louis XVI's finance minister, Jacques Necker. Germaine was in a tough position. She was an intellectual voice in the establishment from kind of early on, but she was also part of the establishment, so she was subversive from within, but not as radical as she needed to be during the revolution when you could be killed for being a shitty attorney. As a measured intellectual moderate in a time when moderation wasn't exactly in vogue, nobody's really happy with Germaine. She's kind of on an island and she made quite a few enemies. Her biggest transgression is that while she expressed herself outwardly and had opinions, she didn't have the requisite penis to go with them, and that's just not going to work out for anyone. I mean, an opinion without a penis? Have you gone mad? You can't have one without the other. It's like having kid without play or hole without oats. When the revolution kicked off, Germaine fled the country and she laid low in the Germanic areas of Europe as a friend of the Habsburg Empire. When Napoleon took over, she had to stay out of France because he hated her. Not as a concept or what she represented, he hated Germaine, specifically, as a person. You. You're tacky and I hate you. He had like a weird thing about Germaine. I'm guessing it had something to do with her challenging him intellectually and him having, like, I mean, it's obvious he had weird stuff with women, but what do I know? Over the years, Germaine traveled throughout the Germanic regions, and she studied cultures and history, and she wrote her book on Germany, a book that sounds both interesting and not derivative. Germaine theorized that France's true cultural foundation wasn't classical, Greek and Roman, like down in the Mediterranean. You're not from there, so why try to do it like they do, with balance and order and reason? She believed that France was like the Germanic regions. They were Gothic at heart, and they should act like it. French art and culture should represent its Gothic cultural roots and incorporate more of the broody, kind of emo aesthetic. She's making a butter versus oil distinction, saying France, they shouldn't worry about the reasoned antiquity of Greek and Rome and fitting into that heritage. Just stop it. Feel something. Be gothic and temperamental. Allow yourself to emote without being controlled by reason. If you're angry about the reign of terror or Napoleon wiping out your village of young men during his wars, feel that. Express that. It's a decent argument, and it resonated with the French people. Since it's a time of turbulent passions, they were ready to feel, and Romanticism was embraced. Kinda quickly, actually. It's almost like the artists were looking for an excuse to be emo. Who'd have thought? Romantic-era paintings were expressive. They pulled emotions from you that are right below the surface. And after Napoleon exhausted everyone with his cult of personality, paintings weren't just about a single great man anymore. Those things in the background of the painting of him crossing the Alps, also known as other people, they were now themselves the subject of paintings. 
A famous early example is the 1819 painting Raft of the Medusa by Theodore Garricolt, a depiction of one of the worst naval disasters to date. It's the 19th century version of the Titanic. Garricolt is one of the godfathers of Romanticism, and that's cool and everything, but instead of learning about him, I'd rather learn about the Medusa. It's rare that I care more about the topic of a painting than the artist, and you'll see why in a second. The Medusa was a well-known French military frigate, the pride of the French fleet. In a good comparison, another good comparison, for a few reasons, besides the Titanic, is the USS Indianapolis. In 1816, the Medusa sailed down to Senegal on a colonial diplomatic mission, of sorts. For now, let's call it a diplomatic mission. The captain of the Medusa was a guy named Uga du Roy du Chamaray. Uga was given his commission by Louis XVIII during the Bourbon Restoration because of his political connections, not for his excellence. Uga was a shitty captain and a shitty navigator. He was described as incompetent, inept, ineffective, and criminally complacent. That is not positive feedback. Uga's lack of navigational skills proved to be an issue on this diplomatic trip from hell when he ran the Medusa aground in the middle of the ocean, something I didn't even know was possible. He got the Medusa stuck on a sandbar 31 miles off the coast of Mauritania. They're legit marooned. This is easily a death sentence. And it will be. Out of the 400 people on board, 146 didn't fit onto the ship's complement of small boats that could sail the final 31 miles to shore. So those 145 men and one woman boarded this rickety, hastily constructed raft that was so ramshackle, as soon as everyone was on it, it started submerging. The small boats tried to tow the raft to shore, or so they claimed. It kind of seemed like they gave up early. The raft was then unhitched for some reason, and 146 people drifted off into the open ocean with next to no food, barely any water, and a comically large amount of red wine. They basically only had booze. When I read about the wine, I was like, oh no, I didn't think this could get any worse, and now you're telling me everyone's red wine drunk? When the raft was finally discovered 13 days later out at sea, the survivors described a level of depravity, violence, and barbarism that is to this day still described as just one of the extremes of the human experience. Out of the 146 people on the raft, 15 survived, and no, the woman didn't make it. And let's be honest, given the factual scenario, none of you thought she would. The 15 survivors described a descent into insanity from fear, extreme dehydration, and everyone being ripshit hammered. It was chaos. There were murders and mass executions, sexual assaults, cannibalism. It was a Lord of the Flies level de-evolution of humanity that can never be fully understood. Theodore Garricolt's interpretation of the Medusa disaster is 16 feet by 23 and a half feet, and that immediate, raw, emotional aspect of Romanticism is on full display. The raft is falling apart in the middle of the ocean, surrounded by terrifying waves and incoming storm clouds. It's foreboding, and on the raft, not even on it, overflowing the raft is a pile of human beings. 
Two of the models that Garakold used for this painting were actual survivors of the Medusa wreck. And whether that was necessary or not, or if it was a re-traumatizing experience, who knows? Some of the men on the raft are alive. Others are clearly dead, like the guy in the foreground who's laying backward with his head in the water, and no one's even trying to help him, so you know he's gone. Garakolt is embracing Romanticism's emotionality. He's showing us utter hopelessness, suffering and fear with a sliver of optimism, as a few of the men, propped up on one of the casks of wine, desperately wave at a minuscule ship in the far, far background. You could barely see it. So even if they're actually seen, they might be wiped out by that giant wave. We still get the warm color palette, like in neoclassicism and Napoleon's empire style, with those oranges and yellows, but the emotional tone is clearly different than the K-pop Napoleon on a steed of war crossing the Alps. This is visceral. It immediately pulls your emotions to the surface. You don't need a, a 1,500-year-old story of three brothers to understand it. It's a blunt object that hits you square in the face. As Romanticism progressed, we get a more complex and sophisticated example with Eugene Delacroix's 1830 painting, Lady Liberty Leading the People. By 1830, we are at peak Romanticism. A lot of feelings happening. It's very emo. Delacroix was a protege of Garakolt's and even one of his models for the Raft of the Medusa. And here, he uses Garakolt's emotional expressiveness and combines it with the ongoing revolutionary fervor. Lady Liberty Leading the People is an iconic French painting of the July Revolution that overthrew the very man who gave Piss Ponds his nickname, King Charles X. Delacroix's painting doesn't fully get its due for, I mean, God, years after it's painted, not until Napoleon III takes over. It gets put on ice for a while. I get it from the monarchy's perspective. It doesn't exactly scream monarchy-friendly, but King Charles X was such an unrelenting piece of garbage that the painting wasn't seen as outright sedition, and it could technically be interpreted as still being supportive of the new king, Louis-Philippe I. That's how much everyone hated Charles X. This painting was seen as not treasonous to the next king. I, I don't know how, but it wasn't. I guess he was just that terrible. Lady Liberty Leading the People is famous for its depiction of Marianne, the personification of the French revolutionary spirit, who is prominently displayed on the front lines of battle. She's wearing a Phrygian cap, a symbol for freedom, and her dress is torn, exposing her breast. And ordinarily, the single exposed breast is a, a metaphor for the Madonna and child. She is, after all, the mother of France and French freedom. But it's not purely Madonna-esque. Her other breast is about to be exposed as well. So there should be a sense of vulnerability that you'd think she'd want to acknowledge, but she doesn't. She doesn't care to cover herself. It's not the time for modesty, not while she's rallying the troops. Are you serious? Marianne's not a damsel in distress. She's a general, a general on the front lines. You think she cares about a nipple or two nipples, any nipples right now? She's got the tricolored flag held high with bold colors, willing the soldiers on. And she's grasping that musket mid-muzzle with some leverage, straight up ready to stab someone to death with a bayonet. Jesus.
The painting is still full of that Garakult despair, with the look of fear on some of the soldiers' faces, like the rich bougie guy in the bow tie and tails, whose top hat managed to stay on somehow as they're trampling the bodies of their fallen comrades. Like the one in the corner, the one who's got on the bloody shirt, no pants and a single sock. Unquestionably, the worst way to die. If you die while wearing a shirt, no pants and one sock, you were not surrounded by loved ones as you you died. I'm sorry, you just weren't. If you were, they'd find that other sock and put it on you, or take the other one off? I don't know, it's a weirdly uncared for way to die. There should be two socks or zero socks. It's existentially incomplete and off-putting. It's like a sad Winnie the Pooh situation. So even in the most obscure corners of this painting, we get this like sad, intenseful, mournful human experience. Except that it's not really the dominant theme of this painting. That despair and hopelessness, it's fading. There's this building swell, not of a deadly wave about to crush them like in the Medusa, but a triumphant feeling of hope, pride, and inspiration, with Marianne, Lady Liberty, standing in an elevated position, and slightly off-center and leaning to the right, giving the impression of forward movement, momentum. Next to Marianne on the front lines is a small newsy child carrying two guns like he's Nick Cage in Face Off. Why is there a child here? There is a child soldier in this painting. In Lady Liberty, Delacroix gives us anger, pride, fear, savagery, hope, passion and courage. And how about shame? Shame to the men of France who didn't fight against shitty Charles X as women and small newsy children are laying their lives on the line for the sake of freedom. This is a tornado of emotions and Frenchness, with a guy on all fours arching his back to look at Marianne in a way that makes me uncomfortable and sort of turned on, but then there's dead people and child soldiers, so that's a turn off. The whole composition is this tipping point of life and death, subjugation and freedom, there's boobs, it is powerful and exhausting. There's an intensity to romanticism that you can't keep up forever. I mean, we've been talking about it for like 10 minutes, and I legit need a nap. It, it's too much. Even if we only talk about the child soldier leading the charge with two flintlock pistols, his fearless expression betraying his youthful inexperience, oblivious to the flimsiness of life, there's no way that newsy boy survived the next, what, nine seconds? And nobody's saying that's not super upsetting. There is a child soldier standing in no man's land between opposing front lines of a revolutionary war, with his right arm in the air from the gun's recoil. His final act is shooting that gun. The best possible scenario we can hope for is that he's shooting an adult and not another newsie. We can't just assume he shot a full adult. What about this painting says we can? We only got 50% of the equation, and that first 50% is a child. A painting like this, or Raft of the Medusa, they're emotionally intense, and they're so intense that you can't be apathetic. You have to feel. The main problem becomes there's only so much emotion you can put on canvas, year after year, scene after scene, without it being like, okay, okay, jeez, enough with all your feelings. Just give me a second to breathe here.
I get it. People drunkenly killed and ate each other on a raft at sea, and the last thing a small newsy boy did before dying was maybe kill another small newsy boy on the front lines of a war. Jesus, I, I get it, but just, just give me a second to process this. It's not sustainable. You're going to tax people to the point of breaking. And romanticism, it did last a while. It lasted many decades. But there was eventually a breaking point. You can only make people feel, like, make people feel so many feelings before it's like, God, just stop being so pushy, artistically pushy. And as we've seen numerous times now, when an art movement maxes out and it's time to transition to something new and move on, the pendulum tends to swing in the other direction, generally. For instance, with Romanticism, for all the passion it inspires, it's pretty bougie. Take the Raft of the Medusa, celebrated when it was shown at the 1819 Salon in Paris. Yes, there is sadness, terror, hopelessness in the face of unimaginable violence and savagery, extremes of the human condition, as experienced by a ship transporting the restored Bourbon monarchy and their soldiers down to Senegal. I said before that it was something like a, a diplomatic colonial mission or something like that. A generous euphemism, at best. What do you think that ship was doing? It certainly wasn't a sightseeing tour. They were on their way to Senegal to resecure it as a French colony, to put black people into bondage. That's why they were on the boat to begin with. And their new modern take on slavery in Senegal is that it's technically not like a true form of slavery. There were some loopholes now because you could purchase your freedom, even though nobody could afford it because they're slaves. So when you parse out the details behind the raft of the Medusa and the Medusa's mission, perhaps the painting didn't stir everyone's passions. Or you could at least imagine some people might have had mixed feelings on the issue. Like, I don't know, maybe the Senegalese. Or even Lady Liberty, which feels proletariat and of the people, until you recognize that the bougie guy with the top hat and the ascot and the expensive suit is given top billing, almost on par with Marianne and the militant newsy, in acknowledgement that without the wealthy bourgeoisie willing to get their ascots and top hats blown off for the less fortunate, Charles X would still be in power. And yes, yes, we should mourn and celebrate the bougie man with the top hat. But rich people are always celebrated in art. And if you keep celebrating the wealthy through portraits or sculpture, it's their narrative that'll dominate your cultural history, telling a fraction of the true story. So when you start to pick apart the, I guess like the argument or the foundation of Romanticism, you can see the seeds of where we're going to get some critical backlash. Then there's the two other main tenets of Romanticism that, while they were initially enjoyed, people started to question, a reminiscing of the past and celebrating the splendors of nature. Those two concepts are found everywhere Romanticism spread, whether it's in Europe with the German artist Caspar David Friedrich and his famous Wanderer Above the Sea and Fog, or in America with Thomas Cole, really anything painted by Thomas Cole. Cole's work is a, a wistful longing for the days when factories weren't billowing smoke, when people traveled by horses instead of trains, and you lived and died connected to the land, nature, our greatest ally and our greatest enemy. 
There's this idyllic romanticizing, you know, hence the name, of the past as better, back in the good old days when things were simpler. And those are powerful ideas in a post-Napoleonic world that's being confronted by the Industrial Revolution and where in the past few decades, the world has changed drastically in a way that few people anticipated. People were scared. And whether Romanticism started in 1794 or 1811, it almost doesn't matter, because given the premise behind the movement, you can see how it really blew up during the Bourbon Restoration. So the end date is almost more important than the start date, like existentially, because people didn't want the end date to exist. It's the, the whole premise behind the movement. It's easy to romanticize the past as better times and conveniently forget why things went south the first time around. We all do it. It's why the movement lasted so long. It, it taps into human nature and, and our fear of the future and the unknown. It's that innate human condition that fed into Romanticism and the Bourbon Restoration. And you know what? Every fiber of your being may say, Romanticize the past and don't look forward because there's history in the past and it's easier and the future is scary. And that might make you want to get back together with your ex. You hope the good times outweighed the bad and you're going to do it smart this time. You're going to talk things out when they come up and you're not going to bottle up your feelings and act like everything's fine when it's not. And she doesn't need to immediately have the dream lifestyle that she's always wanted. She understands there's a five-year plan and it's not like she needs your money. It's, it's more the principle of the thing. We can do it right this time, with this second chance. Except that with some time, you're reminded of why you broke up to begin with, and that you can't fix what's irreparably broken, foundationally. Sometimes you need to listen to your first instinct, and your friends who care about you, and make a clean break. Because you know what? In retrospect, yeah, I also think my parents didn't trust you, and I didn't want to admit that to myself, let alone you. Things will never be the same in Europe again. I'm sorry, but if you keep ignoring progress, you're going to get left behind. Paris was changing. France as a whole, oh, yeah, okay, a little slower, but the world is moving forward, and we can't just celebrate rich people from the past when that's not what the country is anymore. Oh, in those simpler times, the good old days of the past? Okay, good old days for who? Because it's certainly not the Senegalese, or the technically not peasants anymore, but still functionally peasants in France, who keep the country going with the doldrums of everyday life that, you know, aren't sexy, but are necessary, like tilling the land, or milking cows and sheep, or, or goats, or whatever people milk. I have nipples, Greg. Could you milk me? Or what about the industrial workers and the country's new factories, without whose contributions there wouldn't be a revolution of 1848? Why aren't we painting them? It was this backlash against the core tenets of Romanticism and the Bourbon Restoration that swung the artistic pendulum back in the mid-19th century to realism, or social realism. Realism is ordinary French citizens doing ordinary things, in the present, with the theory that if you're gonna celebrate people and use their stories to elicit emotion, you should use the country's unsung heroes and, instead of romanticizing the past. In 1848, the artist Gustave Courbet, the godfather of realism, shook the French art world when he debuted the painting After Dinner at Ornans, and it blew people's minds. Nobody really saw this coming. 
Corbet was a country boy, and his parents were revolutionaries, so he was predisposed to seeing everyday people and their struggles as inspiration, more so than, I don't know, someone like Jacinthe Rigaud would. In After Dinner at Ornans, Corbet takes a Dutch Golden Age-style genre scene and applies it to... Just a couple of guys. They could be anybody. Well, not anybody, but you get the point. And that was really his message. And then the choice to have the genre scene be after dinner rather than during or before. It's, it was a bold choice when so many artists use food itself to say something in a painting. I mean, whether it's still life or a dinner genre scene, who doesn't want to see the food itself? We can see the culinary trends of the time and what food was available, and it gives us that psychological satisfaction of an impending meal. The anticipation of eating delicious things and laughing with a table full of friends. Corbet's doing something different here. He's showing us the part that isn't the most exciting, the point in the dinner that, for the men at the table, brings on sadness. The end when there's no more excitement or anticipation, when you're faced with the reality that the temporary escape is over and you have to get back to the grind of your daily existence, which for these guys wasn't easy. They're not the wealthy elites who go pheasant hunting and eat truffle larded goose livers whilst adorned in the finest silks. They're poor, everyday laborers wearing simple clothing, slumped in their chairs, worn out from a long day during a long week, month, year, a lifetime of toiling, barely able to get by, keeping their kids alive. And this dinner, it was a brief reprieve. As much as they're listening to the violinist, the men are half in their heads, contemplative and lost in their own thoughts. Maybe one more song while we nurse the end of these drinks and smoke a pipe? A few precious moments with no immediate cares before going home to bed to wake back up and do it all over again and again and again, knowing that while they may be the engine of France's economy, they're not paid like it. They don't have that safety net of generational wealth. They're not a Raymond or a Louis or an Alphonse, who we're getting back to soon, I promise. These are real people. And to see these real people portrayed, one of whom, the guy on the left, is Corbet's father. To see them on canvas in a way that still made you feel, just not in the soapy, over-the-top style of romanticism. It was inspiring to people who, at least the people who hoped the 1848 revolution would be permanent. This is where Corbet started with realism. He's not done yet. And I want to talk about one more painting of his before we transition back to our main story. This is where Corbet really hits his stride. It's, in a sense, not a celebration of poverty. It's more an acknowledgement of the poor as people, humanizing them. And I know this has been a crazy long side quest, but realism and the evolution of who is depicted in art, I guess. It's a crazy important building block for our series overall. The next year, at the 1850 Salon, Corbet debuted The Stonebreakers. I love this painting. I didn't think I would. And granted, it's a different kind of love than I have for Louis XVI's sassy portrait, but not a lesser one. It's, it's different. I love all my children equally, if not differently. 
I think part of it is just knowing the history and how groundbreaking this was in France. I mean, think about how far we've come. After centuries of great man and rich people portraits, this is on the other end of the spectrum. It's completely different. This is the reality of true poverty in France. These two can't afford dinner at Ornans, let alone be sad when it's over. And they don't even have the type of peasant job where you're inside away from the elements, or even outside around animals or vegetation. Something to make you happy or keep the brain occupied. Not just consistently sad and repetitive and back-breaking. They're crushing big rocks into smaller rocks with hammers and then carrying those smaller rocks away. What's worse is, this is the type of work that's done alone. There's an overall feeling of isolation, with the shadows on the hillside telling us it's late in the day, and the sun is setting, so they've been out there all day as they are day in and day out. We don't see their faces clearly, so they could be anyone. I mean, again, not anyone, but you get the message. We do get a sense that the one on the left is very young. Too young to be doing a job that we know he'll have until he's the age of the guy on the right, who's too old to be doing this type of work. And their clothes are raggedy with rips and holes, and the boy's pants show his ankles, so they don't even fit. Historically, this is a critically important piece. Corbet was an avowed socialist, and he painted this right after Marx and Engels wrote the Communist Manifesto. So boring. The Stonebreakers is a visual representation of the manifesto. Corbet was taking a huge risk by going this far and focusing on workers' rights and their trials and tribulations, and he later does go to prison for his political beliefs. Artists like Diego Rivera and David Alfaro Siqueiros, they saw the Stonebreakers when they were in France, and it influenced their styles in the Mexican muralist movement. I mean, Frida probably stood in front of this painting when she was in France. I would have loved to have seen this in person, but sadly we can't. In February 1945, during the bombing of Dresden in World War II, the Stonebreakers was destroyed in transit. It's gone. And it's a real bummer. I had like this... Real sense of loss when I learned that. I don't know where that came from, but I was like, oh, Jesus, that really sucks. Corbet's work is on the harsher side of realism, and it caused a ruckus with critics at the Salon. The establishment wasn't happy. The brush strokes weren't precise, and it was gritty. It lacked the refinement of romanticism. Every excuse other than being honest and saying, y yeah, we don't want to see poor people. Realism? No, 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 this won't do. There's it's pores. We honestly, we don't want to see pores. Some artists, like Jean-Francois Millet, tried to Disneyfy realism to make it more acceptable to critics, with paintings like The Gleaners, showing peasants who are a little more fashion-forward and washed, content with their work on this idyllic French countryside. Not exactly reality, but a solid attempt to make realism more palatable. And it didn't work. The bougie establishment at the Salon, they still pushed back. 
And that's too bad for the crusty establishment who don't realize they're turning into dinosaurs. Because by the late 1850s, early 1860s, between the Hausman renovation, industrialization, the influx of culture from China and Japan, Paris is becoming this new, living, breathing, evolving thing. The population of the city itself and the demographics, they were shifting too to what'll be more of a modern form of the middle class. And between the laborers, sailors, industrialists, bankers, shopkeepers, there's all these new people. And since the whole thing is backed by Napoleon III's empire cash, people had money to spend. So that meant bars, restaurants, performance venues for dancers, PROs and clowns, even though I hate clowns, all kinds of plays and operas, magic shows, the circus. These kinds of places have been and will continue to pop up and everyone's got to be entertained. You can't overwork people and then not give them something to do to blow off steam. The people demand nightlife. And as much as I'd love to discuss the performance arts in France, we've got to save it for later. We need to get back to our main story of Alphonse and his military friends carousing in Paris on the weekends, and it doesn't make sense to talk about the performance arts now, because Alf wasn't exactly spending his free time appreciating the operas and the theater and the burgeoning culture the city had to offer. That's not his thing. Alphonse de Toulouse-Lautrec, second lieutenant and famed horse jumper and steeplechase racer, and bizarre guy and drinker, and uh, look, you're, you're not surprised by this. He's not exactly a theater and an opera guy. Now that we've got a better sense of the city, let's see how Alf spent his time there. Alf had a standing room at the Hotel Peyrey at 5 Cité du Retiro in the 8th arrondissement, one of the most fashionable districts in the city. His brother Odon is the one who actually discovered the hotel and told everyone about it. It'll be the extended family's hotel of choice in the city. They all love it there. The Peyrey, as they called it. It'll be our Parisian home base for a while. It was an upscale hotel, as you'd imagine, with room for about 40 or so people that catered to primarily an international clientele. Sometimes the Toulouse-Lautrecs and the Tapier de Saint-Laurent and the Dubosques and all of those people, they'd be the only people there speaking French. There was an accompaniment of servants, a salon for socializing, a fancy dining hall, and it had a private courtyard that felt tucked away, hidden from the hustle and bustle of the nearby commercial street, the Rue de Faubourg Saint-Honoré. Alf's general routine would be to have breakfast and then meet up with the boys at the Longchamp racetrack. The Longchamp was new. It opened in 1857 and was a 570,000-square-meter track and entertainment venue. Spending time at the Longchamp was a measurement of your social prestige. It was the place for the elite to see and be seen. Since the racetrack is built right up against the River Seine, society people like Alf would arrive on boats and take their society strolls to their private boxes and do rich people outdoor things, I don't know, and watch the horses and the races. And Alf was in his glory with so many horses and racing. I don't know, I still can't fake my enthusiasm here. There's nothing about this interests me. 
When the races were over, Alf and the boys from the 6th Regiment of Mounted Lancers would go from bar to bar, drinking and raising hell, and Alf would sleep with as many barmaids as he could possibly get his hands on. Literally. Barmaids were Alf's specialty. He really loved barmaids. I can't fully express how much he enjoys empty, meaningless sex. He can't get enough. Literally, he can't stop. Not now, not ever. And not to say that barmaids have meaningless sex, I'm just saying that Alf would have meaningless sex with them. Someone close to him once said that Alf, quote, did not mix love into matters of copulation, unquote. Whether it was barmaids in Paris or farmers' daughters in the countryside, another of his preferences, he was also quite fond of shepherdesses, Alf would sexually focus on women who weren't in his social class. That way there'd be no confusion about the possibility of a future together. Alf's a fuckboy. That's, that's what it is. Alf is an 1860s fuckboy. And look, let's be real about this. Alf's not that young anymore. For the time. He's in his mid-twenties, I think 24, almost 25. Kinda old for the future Comte of Toulouse to have no heirs, or at least be in the process. He's directionless, getting arrested by the military police for playing frivolous tunes on a bugle, sleeping with barmaids and dairy farmers' daughters. I mean, how far are you going to take this routine? I feel like I'm channeling my mother. You can't keep living your life like this. You're 40. I'm kidding. She sounds nothing like that. Honestly, she's just happy I made it to 40. Once I reached that... Tell the entire world you taped over your parents' wedding video with 90s Skinamax softcore porn. Once I hit that stage in life, everybody just kind of lets everything else go. In some ways, it's, it's, it's actually kind of cool. Uh, but Alphonse, he has expectations and dynastic responsibilities. He can't keep doing this forever. Something's got to give. The only thing he accepted was that he's not long for the military, for many reasons. He's not out yet, but he knows the clock is ticking. When you spend 132 days in military jail, you're not exactly on the fast track to general. In the meantime, he's got to go back to Labasque, and at the very least, he's got to start coming with intention, something he hasn't done so far. He's got to find a wife and produce an heir, and as we know, he didn't have far to look. There was someone who Alphonse has been very much into. For how long? Again, I'd rather not think about it. A gorgeous, pious young woman of the Languedoc who came from an extraordinarily rich family. Someone he's known since he was three years old. His cousin, Adele. We are here. I was gonna say we're finally here, but I don't want to give the impression that I've been anxiously awaiting this moment. Yet here we are. Okay, that's not exactly true. Part of me's thrilled to be here right now because it's the culmination of seven hours of show and an amount of research and production hours that I will never get back. And you know what? We're, fuck it, we're, we're finally here. Let's lean into this. We might as well. No one should ever have to think about this, this very concept. Yet here we are. So ideally, I want to get this part out of the way and never talk about it again. I only want to go through this intellectual exercise once. And because we're finally here, I'm going to make it as awkward as I possibly can. Okay, now, 
For those of you listening who have a cousin, a first cousin, I'm going to need you to picture your cousin. If you got multiple cousins, pick one. We don't need to know which cousin you picked and why. That, that one's your business. You don't always have to say the inside stuff out loud. Now, I want you to really hold an image of your cousin in your mind. And I don't want you to imagine, well, I mean, I clearly do. I do want you to imagine having sex with your cousin. It's the whole point of this. What I'm saying is, that's not enough. Merely picturing the act. That's amateur level cousin fucking. We're going to be experts now. I'm going to need you to think about your cousin. <laughs> I'm sorry. I need to make this worse for a few. I'm not sorry. I'm not sorry at all. I'm going to make this worse for a few more minutes. Hang in there. I mean, you grew up together. All the vacations and the holidays. You have inside jokes about your grandparents. It's your cousin. Okay, now I want you to imagine that there is such a sexual potency between you and your cousin. You can't keep your hands off each other to such a degree that it's comparable to the sexual chemistry between Adele and Alf. You want to fuck that much, where history will remember your animalistic cravings towards each other as, quote, the violent passion of real lovers, unquote. <laughs> I don't like that at all. That description's not, I guess I have to have sex with my cousin because our parents cajoled us into it. No, that's you and your cousin. You enjoy it way better when you both come together. When one of you is about to come and then that instinctive biochemistry and the pheromones take over and it's, no, don't stop, don't stop, just like that. And then your cousin's grabbing the sheets with one arm and your neck with the other and they start doing that blinking thing and, uh, and it's too much for you to handle seeing your cousin like that. So now your toes are curling and your O face is out. And you you can't stop now. It's like trying to stop a sneeze. Only it's not a sneeze. It's, uh, uh, <laughs> have I grossed everyone out yet? Jesus Christ, we're two episodes into this series and I'm already not doing okay. I also have neighbors. Sorry about that, guys. Uh, hey, you should go to the bathroom before you fall asleep and get a UTI. I know, I know you don't want to. And my hoodie's right over there on the floor. All right, I'll go with you. I should wash my hands. I should wash my hands. At I, can't even get the I can't even get the joke out. It's so gross. The violent passion of real lovers. That was Alphonse and Adele. Maybe. I'm skeptical. As fun as that was to make everyone go through that for no reason whatsoever, it feels... I don't know. It's, it's one side of the story of how Alf and Adele got together. An uncontrollable need to come together with your cousin. And I do want to caveat that I've never experienced Alf's musk and seen his man thighs in person. So admittedly, we're working with limited information. But we do have to consider when the story was told, when the mythos is created. We need to picture people asking questions about Alf and Adele getting together at the turn of the 20th century, with full knowledge of everything that's going to unfold over the next however many episodes. Saying the marriage is because Adele couldn't resist red riding trousers and this intense sexual desire between the two, it's a convenient excuse that paints Adele as a seductress and Alf never had a chance and he went with it because why not? She, you know, she's smoking hot and she's rich and my parents are cool with it and so like whatever. And should things not go as expected, you get to blame a single person and turn a Madonna into a whore, rather than question the decision-making of the grandparents and the culture. 
We all want our families presented in the best light. It's human nature. And what made sense to Louise and Gabrielle, on paper, for a strategic marriage during the Restoration, looks kinda antiquated when social mores change. 1910 Paris is a much different place than pastoral 1863 Languedoc, when you thought your son would be another Raymond or Pisspons, and you're the only people in the area who had a bathtub. And it's not like people didn't know this was stupid before. They did. Remember King Charles II of Spain, El Hechizado, with his coal-black nut and giant hydrocephalus? Don't call it a waterhead, it's a hydrocephalus. You're not being mean if you say it in Latin. It's just that a lot's happened in the last... I don't know, 30 plus years to change people's outlooks. Whatever the veneer of the, the thin veneer of acceptability that there still was for having sex with your cousin, by this point, for the most part, it was gone. When you're down in the Languedoc, though, maybe it wasn't as gone as people thought. So what was it that actually brought Adele and Alphonse together? Was it Grandmother Gabrielle and Grandmother Louise's plan to find a legal loophole and maintain a dynasty that traced its roots to the First Crusades and the taking of Jerusalem and then manufacture a scion who could lead them into the future? Or, or was it an overpowering need to lazy doggy your cousin? I'm thinking it's a little of column A, little of column B, likely more A than B given how the story plays out, but we'll never know for sure. And regardless, we're here, and there's a wedding to plan. I mean, just picture the scale and the scope of what we're dealing with. The future Comte of Toulouse is marrying a Dubosque daughter. You can imagine the pageantry, the wine and the food, organizing the guest list and the table assignments, the flowers, and then there's the paperwork. They weren't just getting married. This would be like the merger of two major businesses. And merge they did, on May 9, 1863, when a 21-year-old Adele Margaret Zoe Dubosque Tapier de Saint-Laurent and her 25-year-old cousin Alphonse Charles de Toulouse-Lautrec-Manfa were married. And that's it. That's all we know. What kind of wedding they had? Who was there? I honestly don't know. I couldn't find any information on Adele and Alf's wedding itself, which for a family who pathologically documented everything was pretty surprising. Ordinarily, this would be a spectacle. You'd have letters flying around, planning logistics, and gossiping about who's attending and who's not, and I couldn't find anything. I think there's a possibility that the grandmothers or whoever, they didn't want to spotlight this joyous occasion because while the marriage is technically allowed, no one's under the illusion that this is a good idea. It's going to raise some eyebrows because they're cousins. Regardless, when the dust settled, Alf and Adele are newlyweds and Adele was, she was having some regrets. If they did have some torrid love affair of overpowering passion, it involved more reverse cowgirl than it did talking and getting to know one another. Their personalities are not aligned. They didn't see eye to eye on anything, and it didn't seem like she knew that beforehand. She does try, though. She's determined to be a proper Catholic wife and to make this work. And him being so attractive, with the broad shoulders and the dump truck of an ass, that does help. 
I got the sense that Adele had an image of Alf in her mind, her older, confident, handsome cousin who she looked up to. Sure, he was always a little quirky, but quirky can be endearing, I hope, and maybe he'll settle down. And the marriage did make sense on paper, in a manner of speaking. It was a life she already knew, maybe a little too well. Uh, her financial future was set, and it's like, sure, I know Alf well enough, and she didn't know him. She did not know Alf. She's about to learn, though. We all are. A few days after the wedding, Alf's military buddies from the 6th Regiment, they're all hanging out in Paris at one of their usual spots, drinking, laughing, and just, oh shit, as I live and breathe. Look who walked in. Alphonse, what are you doing here, man? Didn't you just get married? And he's high-fiving motherfuckers or whatever they did in 1863 France. They were delighted to see Alphonse days after the wedding. Oh, wait, wait, wait. If you're honeymooning in Paris, then we can meet Adele and we can all go to the Longchamp races and party together. Oh, this is going to be the best. Except that Alf didn't bring Adele with him. When one of the friends asked where she was, Alf was like, ooh, shit. That's right, I'm married now. Dude forgot he was married, and it's like day six. So he left Paris to be with Adele at La Basque. For him, this wedding was just another party, and then he went back to doing his own thing. That's how little he was invested emotionally. He thought of his marriage like you think of dinner last Monday. Oh, we did have eggplant parm, didn't we? Yeah, that was Monday. Isn't it funny how eggplant parm is the one dish where the veggie version is arguably better than the meat version? How about that? Oh, big gulps, huh? All right. Well, see you later. Okay, this is, this is a bad start for mom and dad. You know, given the fact that dad forgot about mom. They're having a hard time finding their footing. And with Labosque as it was, they're constantly surrounded by family drama and a ton of people. It's hard to just center yourself for a second. They've got a bunch of overbearing relatives around, and because of the confusing family tree, they're sort of like meta-relatives. They've got multiple designations, which is tough to wrap your head around. And your new husband, slash cousin, he's in the front garden, holding a falcon, and he forgot you were married. And there's a thousand children running around screaming, cousins of cousins of cousins. The grandmothers, they're off yelling at the staff for messing up the laundry or dinner or who knows. Your uncle... He just asked you when your last period was because babies don't make themselves, which is like, wait, dude, what? What the fuck? OK, time out. Time the fuck out. Enough. Everybody back off. This is not sustainable. Adele and Alphonse, they need a marital reset. Without the prying eyes of meta-relatives asking about menstrual cycles or the interference of family and friends, it's too much. They need time to themselves, alone, to figure out a way to prepare for a life together, to get on the same page as partners, as cousins, spouses, and hopefully Adele can learn to appreciate Elf's personality, and they can both enjoy the passionate excitement of being newlyweds to let those tight red riding pants hit the floor and bring out those Alphonse man thighs. Mm, let them breathe! They've been riding horses all day. You know what we need? We need a honeymoon. Of course we need a honeymoon. A proper one where both of them show up. I think after this episode, I need a honeymoon. 
In the early 1860s, for the wealthy French elite, there was only one honeymoon destination, a Mediterranean wonderland in the it city of France, of Europe. A city that, by virtue of its strategic location, had exchanged hands through wars and treaties countless times and developed this, it's like an energy and a cultural uniqueness that you can't manufacture without that kind of long-term cultural give and take. The Toulouse-Lautrecs are going to Nice. Nice was founded in 350 BCE as a Greek colony by the Phocations of Marseille. It was a trading outpost for the ancient world. When Rome ascended, they took it over in the first century as part of the Roman Republic and then the Empire, then it was the Saracen Muslims from the Middle East, and then the Italian kingdoms in France, they passed it back and forth a bunch of times, until a few years back in 1860 when Sardinia transferred Nice to France one last time. With the expanded use of steamships and railways, Nice was now easier to reach from all over and word got out that the south of France was paradise, if you had the money. And with that sudden infusion of rich tourists, within a short period of time, Nice had to build an infrastructure to handle these people, quickly. So instead of slowly upgrading what was already there over time, which would take way too long, or doing like a Houseman-style teardown, which would also take too much time, Nice expanded out laterally and became sort of a, a bifurcated city. There was the old city sector that was described as, quote, unhealthy and inhabited by the poor and the dirty. And then the new city sector, which was an 1860s combination of Miami, St. Bart's, Rio, Macau, Vegas, Reykjavik, or so I've been told. I was there on a work trip and absolutely was not where people may have thought they saw me. And as an added bonus for the Catholics, Nice had healing waters in the area. Of course there were healing waters. It's only a short carriage ride away and you can donate to the local abbey where St. What's-His-Face blessed the area's stream or where he died tragically. Who cares? As long as it cures your arthritic knees. The new city sector was referred to as the City of Foreigners because of all the diversity, and it wasn't only wealthy Europeans who came through. It was rich people from Northern Africa, the Middle East, Asia, Japan and China specifically, the Americas. During peak season, there was carnival, an enormous party, a sailing regatta, horse and donkey racing. You went to the shopping districts and then walked along the promenade des Anglais to show off your new designer clothing. Women wore their poofy Garibaldi shirts, the precursor to modern blouses, and gigantic cage crinoline skirts. Skirts in the early 1860s were at their biggest. The men wore single-breasted three-piece suits with long waistcoats, cravats, and if you were lucky enough to receive them as a gift from a lady, as was the custom they had to come from a lady, you'd wear embroidered suspenders to hold up your loose-cut pants. And by loose cut, I mean real loose. Riding pants may have been tight, but there's now a whole lot of material happening in fancy pants. Or I guess, I just dre dress pants? I don't know why I call them fancy pants. Nicholas Murray, he would have done well here. And I guess so would have MC Hammer. Can't touch this. 
During the evening, that is when people lost their minds. There were masquerade balls, restaurants that were unbelievably busy and wild, bars, casinos, wild parties of the rich and the fabulous. In 1863, as a newlywed couple, this is where you went to have unencumbered sex with your cousin. I mean, we're on a honeymoon in Nice, the French Riviera. You could not ask for more. We're on Adele and Alf's honeymoon. Let's really sink into this and acknowledge how weird this is from the perspective of the show itself and what we've been doing in each series. I don't think we've ever been on the parents' honeymoon before. It honestly feels intrusive, I guess. Usually we spend, what, half an episode on the parents' backstory and then move on? We can't do that this time around. It's not that simple. And it won't be totally clear why it's not that simple for a while. I think I alluded to this earlier, but in different ways, both parents play an outsized role in Henri's life. Again, arguably an inappropriately outsized role. But from a storytelling perspective, I can't be mad about this. What a wondrous place for us to lean into. Ignoring the fact that from within the conceit of the show itself, from like a narrative perspective, we're basically peeping on our parents' honeymoon. And that was a, that was a thing I wish I didn't realize. And other than that light bulb moment that we should all ignore for the sake of our collective mental health, I mean, we're in the French Riviera, in peak season, and Adele and Alfar trying new restaurants and partying, going to the beach, the casinos, the racetrack, and they're having hotel sex, which everyone knows is the best kind of sex to have with your cousin. They're making memories to last a lifetime. You cherish these moments. Why would you want to be anywhere else? making it all the more confusing and scary when Alf suddenly disappeared. They were away from each other for a bit. Maybe one of them was running an errand. I don't know. And Alf was just gone. He didn't leave Adele a note. The staff at the hotel and the restaurants, other tourists from the racetrack and the casino, their new friends they met on their honeymoon, no one knew where he was. Adele was terrified. Understandably so. Her husband is missing. And from a geopolitical perspective, and yes, we're jumping from cousins having hotel sex to geopolitics, because that's just what we do here, it's a dangerous time for Alf to be missing. He's still a military officer. He's not fully out yet. Yeah, sure, he plays frivolous tunes on a bugle and can't dress himself, but he's still a cavalry officer, and France is perpetually at war, with Napoleon III ramping up colonialism, and Europe terrified of another French emperor named Napoleon. They've been at war in the Italian kingdoms, Hawaii, Portugal, China, the Ottoman Empire, the Netherlands, Morocco, Tahiti, the Balkans for the Crimean War, Japan, Mali, Vietnam, in Mexico for the Second Franco-Mexican War, and no Santa Ana and his wooden leg, whichever one he was on, didn't fight in that war, which was devastating to learn. Bottom line is, Alphonse could have been called to duty at any minute and within a few days could be on a steamship halfway around the world to fight in some random battle. And that's the best case scenario. And if that were the case, he'd at least have a few days notice. Adele feared for the more likely scenario. When day after day went by with no word about Alf, she was resigned to the reality that he was probably killed by someone in Nice. 
It could have been a criminal from the old city during a robbery, someone he pissed off while gambling, or him being a just a generally annoying person, I guess. Or he could have been the target of a freedom fighter or a political dissident looking to take out some random officer of Napoleon III's army. Personally and professionally, there's many 1863 reasons to kill Alphonse. I'm sure a few of you could think of some on your own. With no other option, Adele left Nice and went back home to Grandmother Louise at the Villa de César to let her mother know that her nephew died. See? It's icky no matter how you characterize it. It was a lonely ride back for Adele, I believe she took the train, and she was in distress. Her new husband, the would-be father of her children, her future as the Comtesse, everything was gone. She's already 22 years old, basically geriatric in 1863, and she's been married already, which would limit her marrying options. And it doesn't exactly help her cause that she was married to Alf, who was known throughout the Languedoc to not mix love in matters of copulation, with barmaids and shepherdesses and sex workers, so the likelihood of him having syphilis and giving it to Adele? It would... It's a risk factor in her finding another husband. It sucks and it's unfair, but that will be a consideration for a suitor. So there's so much more at stake here than Alf just being murdered. And this is presuming that Alf was murdered. And of course he wasn't murdered. When Adele reached the Villa de César, all of her fears were washed away when she saw a telegram from Alf waiting for her. He was alive and well. Nobody killed him which is astounding. Each day that goes by where someone doesn't murder Alf is objectively baffling. He'd sent the telegram from the family's hunting lodge in Lurie, in the Loire Valley. He didn't get called away on assignment or murdered in some dark alley. Alf got bored and went hunting in Lurie. Adele frantically opened the telegram, the only communication from her husband who she thought was murdered in Nice. The telegram contained only two words. Quote, send ferrets. Ferrets. He wants ferrets. For what? Why? We don't know, and let's put that issue aside. We'll never know why he wanted ferrets, and that's not the point. To say that Alphonse is checked out of his marriage is... I mean, it's not even an understatement. He abandoned Adele on their honeymoon because of a hunting whim, and his only message to her was, send ferrets. I think it's safe to assume he was never really checked in. And his behavior will not improve. Whatever you feel about Alf as a person, I assure you, it's, it's not going to get any better. Hunting was Alf's emotional escape hatch if he couldn't handle his surroundings. We cannot underestimate who and what he will abandon for hunting and being with the animals. Alf once described hunting as an emotional outlet like this. Quote, Should you encounter the bitterness of life, first the horse, then the hound, and the hawk will be your precious companions and help you forget about things a little. Unquote. He said that to his son, Henri. Alf loved animals more than people, and we have to get used to that fact really quickly. When he and Adele reunited at Labasque, giving marriage another shot, Alf spent more time and emotional energy with animals than he did with Adele. 
He would meticulously prepare breakfast for his 18 hunting dogs, making sure sufficient amounts of beans were mixed into their food to help with digestion, get a little roughage in their diet, and he made them a bed of fresh ferns to protect them from fleas. When his falcons were thirsty, he gave them holy water because he was worried if they died and didn't drink holy water, they would go to hell and he wouldn't be reunited with them. I'm being dead serious. When he rode through town on a horse-drawn carriage, people would stare at the cages of falcons, ospreys, hawks, owls, hanging on the outside like a traveling menagerie. He took them for carriage rides so they could get, quote, some fresh air. Let that one sink in. He wanted to give birds fresh air. If you randomly saw Alf on the street in Albi or Paris, he often just had a bird of prey on his arm with a hood over its head, eating, quote, dripping shreds of raw meat. The times he wasn't preoccupied with animals, he was preoccupied. That, that's it. He was just preoccupied by whatever whimsical merriment that struck his fancy. When the family all sat down at the dining room table, candle lit with the dishes arranged according to Massiolo's design and everyone dressed in their finest attire, they'd patiently wait for Alf to join them. On his own time, he'd jauntily stroll to dinner wearing his favorite Circassian or Circassian, I don't know, it's giant chain mail armor and a helmet, or in, and I'm sorry, I kinda love this one, a full Scottish Highlands ensemble, only instead of a kilt, he'd wear a ballerina tutu. That's a, that's a strong dinner outfit. I feel like if you had a dinner with Alf, when you left at the end, you'd be exhausted, but you'd tell people the story and be like, yeah, and then he came to dinner dressed like a knight with a tutu, and there were two hawks drinking holy water, and he knew Latin and Greek, and he said the craziest shit, and then, before I left, he made me a watercolor painting of me as a gift. The painting was a gift, Todd. I'm taking it with me. One time, Alf started an international incident when he wrote a telegram to the Hotel Peyrey that just said, quote, Salve le Grand Duke, save the Grand Duke. Oh my God, no, no other information. A Grand Duke is in trouble. Oh no. The Peyrey staff read the telegram and freaked out and called the French Secret Service because there were several Russian Grand Dukes staying nearby and Alf's telegram just said, save the Grand Duke. This is where context comes into play. He's a military officer and the heir to a comp title. So given the time and the environment and with all the wars happening, his position, you could understand why 19th century Secret Service agents would freak out. On the other hand, this is a man who sent his wife a telegram after he ghosted their honeymoon that just said send ferrets and who feeds beans to his dogs so they have comfortable poops and holy water to his hawks so they don't go to hell. So there's a distinct possibility this wasn't an international assassination plot against a Russian Grand Duke. In a fucking course it wasn't. Al finished a Parisian-based hunt and midway through his carriage ride back home, he re realized he forgot his favorite eagle owl in the hotel room. Eagle owls are the birds that hunters use as decoys to lure falcons back to the hunters after they're released. Their name in French is Grand Duke. 
Alf panicked at the thought of his prized eagle owl dying of thirst in a Parisian hotel, and he sent a hastily worded telegram that could have started a war because it would have taken too much time for his bird trainer, some dude named Martin de Rabastin, to train another one. Sometimes, and no, we're not done yet, sometimes you'd get the Alf who'd ride into town on a small Norwegian cart drawn by a Shetland pony with a big smile on his face, something I would pay an absurd amount of money to see. Or he'd ride into a busy park on a mare, hop off, milk the teats into a cup and drink it down. Mmm, nice glass of hot horse milk, before hopping back on and riding off. And then he'd wake up one day, and apropos of nothing, he'd be gone. He'd pull away emotionally, withdraw from the family, and disappear on his own into the wilderness, for weeks, months at a time, to the hunting lodge at Lurie or wherever, cutting himself off. And when you did hear from him, his letters were dark and concerning. It didn't sound like Alf, except that it did sound like Alf. This was Alf. It's just not the part of Alf that the family wanted to see, and they may not have understood what was happening. It's strongly hinted at through letters and in the biographies that Alf was very likely bipolar, even severely bipolar. From the Julia Fry biography, quote, Alf had two modes of being. He was either intensely, dramatically present and demanded everyone's attention, or he had gone hunting. Unquote. Alf was the center of the family's attention. Through complete absence or dramatic presence, he drove the narrative. And I know it's super irresponsible to historically diagnose someone, especially diagnose them as severely bipolar, since neither I nor any of the biographers are doctors. That I know of. I'm definitely not. I barely passed high school biology. It's just kind of hard to not acknowledge the elephant in the room when the behavioral changes are so extreme, and it's not like he can get a prescription or go to therapy. There's no real treatment here because nobody knows what's happening, and we can't ignore how this impacts the family. And do you notice I haven't mentioned Adele in a while? Like how she's handling any of this, or what she thinks of her marriage and her husband-slash-cousin, how she's coping with his behavioral swings, or even what she's doing on a given day. She's not happy, I can tell you that. It didn't take Adele long to realize they weren't compatible in any way. And on top of that, she's not a fan of the adultery at all, which he didn't bother hiding. Being married didn't curb his sexual appetite for barmaids or farmers' daughters or sex workers, really whoever gave him the green light. Marriage vows meant little to Alf. He's married in the loosest possible interpretation of the word. And Adele was miserable. Not that happiness matters. Don't get it twisted. Hers or his. And what she was doing on a given day doesn't really matter either. Theirs is a marriage of duty. Duty to produce an heir. They'll take a daughter, but if they're lucky, it'll be a son, who's situated to become a future general and war hero like Raymond IV, maybe the grandfather to a king, the possibilities would be endless. If they don't have a kid, well, they'll ruin everything and she'll be blamed. No pressure. Thankfully, we don't have to worry about that. 
Whether it was from a sense of duty or a violent passion between these two cousins, in the spring of 1864, Adele was pregnant. A baby is on the way. Louise and Gabrielle were ecstatic. This is the dream, a new generation, a new hope, and this baby will inherit so much money. As her due date neared, Adele chose the Hotel du Bosque in Albi for the final weeks of her pregnancy and where she'd give birth. A few sources said it was Le Bosque, but given the sourcing and the context clues, I'm nearly positive they're at the Hotel du Bosque for the last few weeks. And I do mean they, plural, in the most plural of sense. It was the grandmothers, Alf, their cousins, aunts, uncles, maybe Blanche, I don't know, the footnote didn't say. They all descended on the Hotel du Bosque in November to support Adele as she approached her due date. On November 23rd, on her 23rd birthday, Adele went into labor. And as her labor intensified, an extraordinary thunderstorm fell on Albie. The storm was described as violent, a colossal autumn thunderstorm with whipping winds, clapping thunder, and sheets of rain pouring through the hotel shutters and under the interior French doors. Adele was nervous, and rightly so. It was chaotic, and it was not a peaceful birth. The servants rushed to mop the floors with towels. Nursemaids were with Adele and the grandmothers, while Alf and the men paced around and everyone's yelling. It was anarchy. Until finally, on November 24th, 1864, at 6 in the morning, Adele gave birth to her son. And the moment she laid eyes on her baby boy, I mean, she was... She fell in love. Alphonse was happy too, don't get me wrong. He had a son and an heir to the family's title. He did his job. The next day, as Adele's recovering, Alf brought his newborn son to the town hall in Albi to prove he was born alive, which sounds kind of like a strange move, but it's a different time, and title's at stake here, so you brought your baby out in public to prove his existence, like, see, look at him, and to record his name, a name that would ring throughout history as a great man, Henri-Marie Raymond de Toulouse-Lautrec-Manfa. Henri, after Henri the Comte de Chambord, the only legitimate descendant of Louis XV. It's the kid from earlier, the one who was Charles X's assassinated son's kid, who's now living in exile, making him technically the lawful king of France as Henri V? I think the fifth? I don't know, maybe the sixth? Who gives a shit? Because even King Louis-Philippe I is a distant memory. He's a distant memory to us, and that was only like 20 minutes ago. I'm sure most of you forgot about Louis-Philippe I, and you know what? I salute you. You're better people for it. These are such extreme monarchists that Henri was named after a would-be technical king, grandson of Charles X, who everyone hated. But you could see how maybe they might like him for, for piss-ponzy-type reasons. It's like this deep-cut, esoteric, kingly name. Well, actually, this guy should be king. Well, and, of course, the two King Henris, who were stabbed to death, one in traffic. Then Marie for the Virgin Mary. After all, they're devout Catholics. Well, Adele is. Alf doesn't remotely care about Jesus. And Raymond, for reasons we spent far too much time exploring. 
Our artist, Henri de Toulouse-Lautrec, the future Compte, is finally here. After like eight hours and a bottomless pit of patience on your part, thank you so much, we made it. I really appreciate you tolerating my weirdness. I hope you can see now why we had to go through all of what we did. Why just based on his name alone and who his parents were and when he was born, piss ponds, diamond necklaces, brother hanging brother from a walnut tree, the Napoleonic Code, mummified dicks in New Jersey. Okay, maybe not that last one. There was just too much history to ignore, for our purposes, for what we are doing here specifically, and how this story is going to play out, with the benefit of several hundred years of hindsight. And Adele, she doesn't have any of that future history, or that hindsight, and she's not interested. She's got her adorable, perfect newborn son, swaddled up like a little baby burrito, who needs to be protected from the outside world, and she's looking forward not back. Henri may grow up and be a great man, and that's fine, or he won't be. It doesn't matter. Henri's safety, health, and future, that's all that matters to her. Alphonse, he wasn't so sure. After his grand pronouncement at town hall and naming his son, he pulled back. He's not responding to Henri. Something's wrong. Nobody knew what Alf's deal was. I mean, Henri appeared to be healthy, and I know this is like a really ableist thing to say, but it was their mentality in that he had ten fingers and ten toes, so like, what else do you want? And as a bonus, Henri was a legit cute baby. I'll post some photos. This is a widely held opinion. When they left downtown Albi and settled back at La Bosque, a stream of relatives came to see the Scion, a combined descendant of the Toulouse, Lautrec, Manfa, Du Bosque, Tapier de Saleron, all this nonsense. Everybody said how cute he was. It's universal. All right, he's kind of small, but he's adorable. And the value you place on that, the cuteness of a baby, depends on your value system. Most people would say, oh, Henri, he's adorable, and the analysis really stops there. Maybe you acknowledge how much he looks like one of the parents more than the other, and isn't that crazy? And that's it, and you go about your day. As we know, Alphonse isn't most people. How cute of a baby Henri was, it just didn't matter to Alphonse. It wasn't his mindset. It wasn't like he over or undervalued cuteness. It's just, it's not on his radar. And not in the way you'd hope, where it's like, oh, well, this is my son, and I don't care what he looks like. I'll love him no matter what. That's, that's not it. Alf is a breeder. Horses, livestock, hunting dogs, birds of prey, whatever. And breeders look at newborns differently than normal people. Take a puppy, a purebred puppy, since we're talking about the idea of breeding with intent. We all see a puppy and say, oh, look how cute that puppy is. And they've got that puppy breath, and they fall asleep in goofy places, and then when they start to grow, they're little stumbly monsters, and they develop their own personalities, and they, they chew all your shit, and, and one day, they become adult dogs, trusty companions through thick and thin, and you go on adventures together, and they help you through the hard times with their unlimited capacity for love. 
And yeah, they're not human, but you can't deny the emotional bond between you. They're part of the family. Maybe their name is Moke, and maybe it's not. And then one day you notice that they're getting a little gray fur around their muzzle, a little gray soul patch. And you make a joke about, oh, such an old dog. And then you see that they're getting some gray hair around their eyes. And it hits you and you fully come to grips with the existential reality that one day your dog will die. And you break down and cry in a Dunkin' Donuts drive-thru. Or it could have been a Taco Bell. It doesn't matter. This is all hypothetical. It's the emotional trajectory of dogs. For most of us. A breeder would see that puppy through an entirely different lens. They'd look at that dog and analyze what traits are expected for the specific breed, the coloring of the coat, tail length and curl, the shape of its face, and how they'll develop with age. Will they be fit for breeding themselves? These people are obsessed with perfection. This is Westminster dog show type stuff, with some creepy old guy with a standard poodle propped up on a table, and he's fingering the dog's mouth to make sure its teeth are straight and its bite is appropriate, and he's checking out its asshole to see if it's naturally the right color or did the owner bleach it because everyone knows that bleaching a standard poodle's asshole is the oldest trick in the book and that dog needs to be disqualified immediately. It's all very upsetting. Breeders will also look for warning signs of genetic defects from inbreeding. In the quest to maximize a breed's characteristic, you have to limit genetic diversity to reduce the likelihood of genetic variation. That approach increases the likelihood of recessive genes and genetic defects like hip dysplasia in dogs. It's also the type of risk you take when it's two human cousins, each of whom comes from insular Languedoc families with centuries of questionable reproductive decisions, and they have sex and reproduce. No matter how good he looked in red riding pants or how smoking hot she was, you're playing with fire. A few days after Henri's born, Alf packed up and left Labosque for the hunting lodge in Lurie. He's gone. No real explanation. He just left his wife and newborn son to go hunting. A few days turned to weeks, and it wasn't clear when Alf was returning to his family, and Christmas is now days away. Their biggest fear is that Alf wouldn't be home for Christmas. And let's put aside for a second that it's his son's first Christmas. A weird thing to put aside, admittedly, his son's first Christmas, but let's do it for a few minutes regardless. We can't lose sight of how Catholic and image-conscious this family is. Everyone, everyone except Alf. This is the Languedoc. Christmas with the Toulouse-Lautrecs was an event. Extended family would descend on La Basque and the, the families nearby estates in Albi or Toulouse and would stay there for weeks, usually starting on December 4th for St. Barbara's Day. During the Christmas season, the family chateaus were decorated with ivy, mistletoe, and the Christmas trees were decorated with candy and apples, apples representing Adam and Eve, which is where we get those globe Christmas ornaments from. They were originally apples, which totally makes sense. And of course, the star on top is for the Star of Bethlehem. That ain't the friggin' Christmas star, Grizz. It's a lighter in the sewage treatment plant. Throughout the Christmas season, dinners at Labosque were a show of power as much as they were about celebration. 
There were bishops, representatives of Napoleon III's government, potential business partners, and they were full of Francois Massiolo recipes and power brokering, with the fervor hitting its apex at the midnight mass on Christmas Eve presided over by the local bishop where the family made their presence felt in front of God and country. At the center of all this maneuvering for the Christmas season are the grandmothers, of course, and most importantly, the male lineal descendants of the Toulouse-Lautrec line. Raymond Casimir, Alphonse, and now arguably one of a handful of the most influential newborn babies in France, Henri. If Alf doesn't show up, it sends the wrong message. It's his son's first Christmas. He should be showing Henri off to everyone. And at the end of the day, none of this dynasty nonsense actually matters. The calculus is simple. Henri is a month old, and it's his first Christmas. Alf shouldn't be anywhere else. And he flaked. He didn't show up. He stayed at the hunting lodge in Lurie. As a Christmas present to his wife and newborn son, he sent the 20-pound leg of a boar he shot that still had the giant hoof attached. Several months later, as winter turned to spring, Alf still wasn't at Labosque. He wrote to his family and said he'd be living full-time at Lurie, and he was comforted knowing that Henri was in good hands. This wasn't what Adele signed up for, and it's certainly not what the grandmothers planned for. From a letter from Grandmother Gabrielle to Grandmother Louise, quote, Alphonse wants to live elsewhere. He's unhappy with himself, so he takes it out on everything around him. He refuses to listen to reason. Adele can't talk to him at all. You can't possibly imagine this kind of mental aberration, nor all he's putting us through. He's dominated by one thought. He wants to shatter our lives together and do without everybody. He must be very unhappy to think that such ideas are the solution. Unquote. Alf was completely immune to pressure from Adele or the grandmothers to at the very least be in Henri's life. Do just Failed. He's got better things to do. His preference was to dedicate his time on this earth to creating the premier hunting experience at Lurie. That was his true passion. He hired a specialist to train the birds and the dogs and horses, and he created these weird house rules to enforce the purity of the hunt. And if you broke those rules, he'd have a conniption and wouldn't let you shoot the animal because you cheated, so the animal deserved to go free. Sometimes he wouldn't let visiting hunters kill the animals because if they were shot and killed, they wouldn't be alive to bring him joy. A guy named Monsieur de Montesquieu told the story of a duck hunting expedition at Lurie. After they trekked for miles to a series of large ponds on the property, Montesquieu loaded his gun, readied himself, and as the ducks were flushed out of the water, Alf stopped him and said to Montesquieu, quote, My dear fellow, please don't shoot. These birds are the delight of my eyes, and if you shoot, you'll frighten them, and they might never come back. Unquote. 
Alf's brothers, now Uncle Charles and Uncle Odon, came to Luri often, as did other, like, random dignitaries. But otherwise, Alf was more or less on his own, which is how he wanted it. For all intents and purposes, Alf is gone. He periodically lives with Adele and Henri for short periods of time before bailing again to go do his own thing. I just want to level set everyone's expectations for whether Alf will turn a corner. He won't. This is who he is. For her part, Adele puts on a strong face and raises Henri with the help of the family and the servants. By the time he's four months old, they're living that nomadic existence that she grew up in. With Labasque as their home base, they'd travel from family estate to chateau across the Languedoc, the south of France, Narbonne, Céléron, Vindrac, and on each stop, the relatives play-acted that even though Alf was an absentee father, he truly loved Henri. It was just, you know, Alf being Alf, and he'll come to his senses. Eventually. He won't. When Henri was six months old, Alf made his triumphant return to Labasque after a flurry of correspondence between him, Adele, the grandmothers, demanding his return. Alf was pleased to see that Henri was gaining weight since he was born a little on the small side, and Adele and Alf weighed him together, and Henri was now 10 pounds 6 ounces, quote, a fair weight for a baby, or a turkey, unquote. There were some health concerns. Uh, Henri was prone to colds and respiratory issues, and maybe not a big deal. It, it is 1865, after all, and I feel like everybody had that, but it was noticeable. In May 1865, there was a sign of something more concerning. The only information we have is from Grandmother Gabrielle's letter, where she mentions the family doctor, Monsieur Seguin, telling the family that Henri's foot was fine, but they should pay attention to it. Don't neglect it. Okay, it's kind of vague and cryptic. Henri's only six months old, so it wasn't a walking injury. It's a red flag. Let's just, for now, say this mysterious foot thing is a red flag that we've got to keep our eye on. Alf didn't stay long at Labasque. He left shortly after seeing Henri for only the second time since he was born. And then, in 1865, Alf made a surprising announcement. Okay, I can't wait for this. He announced, made a proclamation, that it was time for Adele and Henri to pack everything up and live with him full-time at the hunting lodge in Lurie. He told Adele that it would be a home fit for a lady, and now an 11-month-old Henri. How? I, I don't know. But he did say that they'd have everything they need, and he even hired a cook. Adele said, No. Thank you for the generous offer, but no. She's not taking her baby to live in the deep woods with just Alphonse and hunting dogs that eat beans and falcons that drink holy water and there's wolves and shit. What are you talking about? Their lives are at Labasque with the rest of her and his relatives, you know, the meta-relatives. And besides, Adele can't just put everything on hold when there's a wedding to plan. With the sheer number of siblings and cousins and cousins of cousins, weddings were relentless. And it was up to the grandmothers and Adele, the women, they had planning obligations. This wedding in particular was special for Adele. In January, her little brother Amade was getting married. 
this is what I'm talking about. This is the dream, a wedding by the Villa de César in the south of France. It's gorgeous and Mediterranean, but cool enough in January so you don't get lower back sweat or forehead sweat or that behind the knee sweat where you're sitting down outside for like 20 minutes in the heat and you stand up and the back of your knees look like wet armpits and you gotta figure out how to strategically exit the party by somehow walking backwards the entire time so people don't notice the back of your knees are wet. You know, January. The wedding was so important that Adele will be away from Labasque for two months, taking care of the wedding and there's some other family estate issues. Someone died. I, I forgot who, but someone died. Henri did not go with her. He stayed back at Labasque with the servants and maybe a relative or two, who knows, after bonding with his mother, basically only his mother, for over a year. And then she left him alone for months. A necessary few months, I guess, if you want to put yourself in her shoes. I mean, January 1866 was a momentous occasion. Congratulations and a salute to you too, Amade. I'm a little brother too. Alf even makes a trip from Lurie and joins Adele and the family for the wedding. He sort of has to because of who Amade is marrying. So remember early in the episode when I asked you to imagine a cousin, and if you had multiple cousins, you had to pick a cousin, and think not just about having sex with your cousin, but coming together with your cousin, and I wanted to get that out of the way so we never have to talk about it again? Yeah. I might not have wanted to talk about it again, but unfortunately, we don't always get what we want. And I'm right here with you. I'd never ask you to do something I wouldn't do myself. So we're all collectively going to think of another cousin to go down on. Whoever you didn't pick the first time, well, they're up now. That's right. Grandmother Louise's son and Adele's brother Amade is marrying Grandmother Gabrielle's daughter, Alphonse Charles and Odon's little sister, Alex. More cousin sex and we are escalating remember how disgusting it was before thinking about coming with your cousin or i mean on them too really you don't always have to park your car in the garage have some fun with it well it turns out even that was amateur hour we are ramping up to a whole nother level of cousins washing their hands together for entirely i i don't know what it is, i can't i can't get the hand washing joke out i don't know what that is that Something about that, oh, this is not good. And it gets real procreative, I guess. Uh, I don't know, because Amade and Alex will go on to have 14 children of their own, a few of whom will play big parts in our story. In no particular order, we'll get Henriette, Marguerite, Alexis, Olivier, Marie, Fide, Germaine, Beatrix, who goes by Kiki, Genevieve, a.k.a. Bibu, Emmanuel, Odon, Raoul, Madeleine, and last, but certainly not least, Gabrielle. Gabrielle will go on to marry his own Toulouse-Lautrec cousin. I believe it's a third cousin, maybe a second? I don't know. I'm sorry. I lost track of cousins. Alex and Amade's marriage, this is a monster win for the grandmothers, nearly as important as Alf and Adele's marriage. It's a 1A, 1B situation. Now, their 14 kids will get those combined inheritances too, and the Napoleonic Code is skirted again.
That's right. Fuck you, Napoleon. We got you good. Mm. Grandmother Gabrielle and Grandmother Louise, they're racking up the wins right now. They're the Michael Jordan of getting their kids to have sex with each other. Given how big of a deal this was, I wish we had crazy stories to tell from Alex and Amade's wedding. After all, Alf is there. And we don't. We don't have stories, only it's in the most frustrating way possible. Instead of having no information, like with Adele and Alf's wedding, which I would have been cool with, whatever, it happens, we do know that something went down at this wedding, and there was an active gag order. Something happened that was never to be spoken of. I am not okay with this. Knowing there's something and we can't have it, it's so much worse. How could you take that away from us? Especially at a wedding. Ridiculous wedding stories are the best. At my sister's wedding, my cousin blew some guy named Gary. And in a vacuum, that's fine. Sometimes you want to blow a guy named Gary. Except that Gary was absolutely somebody else's date. He may have been the date of my new brother-in-law's sister. He may not have been. Allegedly, this happened. And I probably shouldn't be telling this story. This alleged story. But none of you know my cousin. And Gary's dead. So it's not like he's going to complain. With Alex and Amade's wedding, we have none of the drama we know existed. No cousin. No. No blowjob. And no dead Gary. Rest in power, Gary. There is a family embargo on whatever happened at the wedding, an information lockdown. Letters about it are evasive at best. This was cataclysmic. At the center of the wedding drama, I mean, you know it's going to be Alf. Come on, it was Alf. And whatever it was, whatever happened, it shattered Adele. She is heartbroken. Any hope of them being happy in their marriage, it's gone. Alf took care of that in one fell swoop. I mean, they'll stay married for God and duty or whatever, but they'll never be happy. And we have no idea what happened. I cannot begin to explain how frustrating it is to know that something happened at this wedding that's this juicy of a story and not know what it is. I tried. You know me. You know I tried. I was tracking everything down. It just ended up with oogots. I mean, I hope you understand how hard it was for me to put this episode out with that loose end. I mean, I ended up filling the void with an inappropriate story about my cousin and dead Gary. My comedy brain and OCD history thing just wouldn't allow for that vacuum. I like had to shout something out. I will be taking a trip to Albi at some point next year to visit the Toulouse-Lautrec Museum, and you better believe I will be asking about what happened at Alex and Amade's wedding. When they got back to Labosque, Adele wrote a letter to some random relative. I'm not sure who. And this letter hints at the fascinating relationship that Adele has with her mother-in-law, also her aunt, Grandmother Gabrielle. I mean, think about it. There's an understanding between these two that you can't exactly replicate. And we shouldn't replicate. We gotta remember how deeply complex and fucked up the dynamic is between Adele and Gabrielle. Their letters back and forth throughout the years are incredible to read. Okay, so this is Adele's letter. Quote, My father-in-law and his sons are occupied with their habitual pleasures, hunting and fishing, but I believe I see in them a trace of sadness. 
Moreover, except with my mother-in-law, I remain completely silent, and I live from day to day praying to God to arrange everything for the best. Unquote. And from what we know about Adele, she's pious in her suffering, so you know that description is a purposeful downplay. She's in a bad place. And the only other insight we get on what happened beyond Adele's letter is from a letter from her grandmother, Henri's great-grandmother, Jeanne Dubosc. Quote, a dagger thrust to the heart could not have caused me more pain. I've lived too long to have seen such things happen in my own family. Our dear Adele deserved far better treatment. I can't imagine the sad life she's going to lead. Unquote. Imagine being such a piece of shit that your wife's grandmother, who's also your great aunt, writes a letter like that about you. Whatever Alf did, it was so reprehensible that the family did everything they could to hide it. And Adele was stuck. Divorce? It's not an option for multiple reasons. When it's all said and done, Henri needs a father. And if Alf isn't making the move... Adele would have to? Maybe living at the hunting lodge in Lurie was the solution. If Adele capitulated to Alf's world, maybe the marriage could be saved? Like, the vague marital structure at least. It'll never be a truly happy arrangement. In mid-August 1866, a few months before Henri's second birthday, Adele packed them up and moved to Lurie. Begrudgingly. She was not thrilled. She didn't really have another choice, though. Alf wasn't budging, so she gave it a shot so Henri could have a father. I'm sure some of you guessed that despite Alf's promises to the contrary, the lodge was not ready for Henri and Adele. He dropped the ball already. It, it's almost like he's totally maddeningly undisciplined, completely unable to plan for the future or to complete the projects he undertook. The lodge is isolated, barely furnished, with Spartan decoration. He did build an impressive new dog kennel, though, so that's cool, I guess. Adele took in her surroundings, and she's like, eh, all right, and she did her best. She planted flowers and fresh strawberries in the garden, had proper furniture brought in, and most importantly, she got involved with the church, which was a short distance away, her and Henri. He would be a pious man, not like his father, and Adele would make sure of that. She took him to Catholic Mass daily, and then to nightly Vespers in the nearby chapel. Vespers are the quiet evening prayers before bed. Today we watch Netflix. Vespers are 1866 Netflix. Adele hated Lou Ree. She hated the lodge, the location, the isolation, the revolving door of visiting hunters. She never got used to it there. She's silently enduring, though it's what she does. By Henri's second birthday, his early childhood development was curious. He spoke early. His first word was Baba at seven months old. Maybe. It seems a little apocryphal, but... You know, it's seven months is early, not crazy though. I looked it up, it happens, and throughout his life, Henri is never lost for words. Uh, his first step, though, that took a bit longer. Henri didn't start walking until he was 17 months old. Again, not unheard of. It's on the latter side, and with the mysterious foot issue from before, we'll see. By the time he was two, though, and walking, Adele's fears were somewhat fading. Once he's mobile, he's on the move. 
He'd do that little toddler run where they look kind of drunk with a big grin on his face, and he was insatiably curious and loved picking flowers in the gardens, exploring the property. You couldn't keep Henri still. More than anything, just like his dad, Henri loved animals, and he's one of those kids who at two speaks in full sentences, and he's already developing the sense of entitlement that a proper aristocratic child should have, being very demanding of the servants. So when he wanted to see the animals, he'd yell, To the stables, maid! Or, To the kennel, maid! He's two years old, and he's already sort of a dick. I mean, whatever, it's fine. Adele didn't care. He was too cute, and it was hilarious. He's running around in these little pants and red stockings, and she said he looked like a partridge, giving orders to adults. She hates to discipline him, so she won't. And Alf doesn't care enough to discipline him, so nobody else was allowed to. And if you're ever wondering, is someone disciplining this child? No, not even a smidge. We have the word entitled as an exact description of Henri, someone literally born to title. Alphonse is beyond happy with their living arrangements. He's in his element. He'd hunt and fish all day and then come home and insert himself in the middle of whatever household activities were going on, especially in the kitchen, which annoyed Adele to no end. Alf is full steam ahead. If he is bipolar, Alf is in a manic phase, big time. From one of Adele's letters back home, quote, Alphonse caught an enormous salmon. This mastodon is worth having mounted, but Alphonse wants to eat it, preparing it himself as it should be done. Thus, it's been marinating for five days, and my husband spends each day inventing a new sauce, which humiliates the chef. Henri is ecstatic and would happily abandon alphabet and catechism to observe the culinary fantasies of his father. Unquote. Alf's really excited, and he wants to be involved, and he wants to be an active participant, and he wants to make sure that, oh, oh, what about a family trip to Paris? Let's go to Paris. Everyone drop everything. We are going to Paris. So they went to Paris. Alf took them to restaurants, and him and Adele got opera tickets. He's even willing to go to the opera. That's how much effort he's putting in. And they went clothes shopping for her and Henri, the latest in fashion trends. Parisian fashion was in full swing, supported by new textile factories and manufacturing techniques for dyes, the invention of the sewing machine by Bartholomé Timonier, and the House of Worth, France's first haute couture fa Hot Coachy, the fuck, it's the first fashion house, and they were churning out designs and styles for the aristocratic class. And Alf, he wants to make sure that Adele is adorned in the best. He is putting on a charm offensive. It is intense. And I guess the question is, who is this for? Or why is this happening? I mean, ideally, this is for Adele and Henri to show that he's ready to be a husband and a father. I mean, Adele hoped it was both. The reality is more complicated. Other actions Alf recently has taken made it clear that Henri, not really a priority. Coming back from the hunt one day, Alf came across either a young or an injured wild boar, and he brought it home as a pet. And as it happens, wild boars don't make good pets, and this one was feral and dangerous, primarily because it's a wild boar. 
It would tear up the lawn and aggressively run around and attack anything that came near it. So Henri, he wasn't allowed to play in the garden anymore due to the wild boar peril. And then a bunch of the hunting dogs were gored and they almost died. Adele was blown away. This is eye-opening. It's like, how could you be so thoughtless with your child's safety, or at least his freedom to explore, to the degree that you'd prioritize a wild boar over your son? And the, the answer is simple. Alf is not terribly concerned about Henri or his safety. His effort in the kitchen and the fun Parisian trip, it's not about Henri or even Adele. It's about something else. He wants another child. That's the motivation for this I'm a devoted family man dog and pony show. Alphonse also wasn't the only one with baby fever. Alex and Amade were getting after it. They were like rabbits. It's what you do with your cousin. Amade's pull-out game was weak, and by the winter of 1866, Alex was pregnant with their first child. Adele sent Henri's baby clothes to Alex, including his christening outfit, figuring she wouldn't need them again. She had no idea about Alf's intentions for another kid, and why would she? They barely crossed paths, let alone communicate. Adele's world was Henri, that's all she had. That Christmas and New Year, Alf was, say it with me now, on a hunting trip. If you're keeping track at home, he's now two for two on abandoning his family during the holidays. From a letter Adele wrote to Grandmother Gabrielle on New Year's Day, quote, I spent a very solitary January 1st. The bad weather kept me close by the fireplace. Thank goodness my Henri was there, so happy to own a new wooden horse, a fat toy musician cat, and a train set that his gaiety cast a ray of sunshine on my sad thoughts. I've aged 25 years in the past 12 months. I feel like an old lady with no beauty in my life. I ask only to watch Henri grow up. My life is completely concentrated on him. This is what I'm thinking this evening by the fire. Unquote. What Adele failed to disclose to Gabrielle in that letter was that she's pregnant again. She may not have known it would have been early, or she may have had mixed emotions about being pregnant and didn't want to say anything. We don't know. In February 1867, Adele took Henri on the 21-hour train ride back to Albi to celebrate the birth of Alex and Amade's daughter, Madeline, at the Hotel du Bosque. And when she saw her niece Madeline... I think it's her niece, niece and second cousin, I'm losing track, Adele knew right then she wanted a little girl of her own. Before making the trek back to Lurie in April, Adele and Henri went to the Villa de César to visit her parents, and because they weren't at the hunting lodge in the boonies where food could be legit scarce if the hunt didn't go well and they'd have to eat a steady diet of mushrooms, Adele went nuts on the food from home that she desperately missed. It was fresh artichokes, goose liver pâté, pheasants with truffles and jam, the first asparagus of the season. She couldn't get enough. She was crushing everything in sight. I mean, what do you want? She's six months pregnant and she misses home. She's going to fuck up some truffled goose liver. And once you have that taste of nostalgia, it's, it's tough to go back to forest mushrooms with Alf. 
She tried, but she was done. They stayed in Lurie for about 18 seconds before her and Henri got that 21-hour train ride back to Labosque in July so she could have her second baby around family and a support structure and not wild boars. Adele's taken care of right now, and that's a good thing. And everyone was overjoyed at the arrival of another Toulouse-Lautrec. Henri is going to be an older brother. Alf was excited too, just not excited enough to show up and be present for the birth of his second child. He had some stuff to do at the hunting lodge and sent his well wishes. He's got wild boars to train. On August 28, 1867, Adele gave birth to her second child. It was another son, and Adele named him Richard Constantine. Richard, after the celebrated King of England, Richard the Lionheart, who was a crusader and ruler of much of France in the 12th century, whose heart is entombed in the Rouen Cathedral, home of the Butter Tower, and his middle name, Constantine, for the first Christian Roman emperor. That is a big name, a big name. You call your kid Richard Constantine, you have plans for that child. So you can see the, the mythology growing here. This is where we get the Baudouins and the Raymonds in history. With sons Henri and Richard, Alphonse and Adele have built themselves a proper noble family. They're the next generation. Sure, Adele wanted a daughter so her and Alex and Amade's daughter Madeleine could grow up the same age and... You know, we want what we want, but you look down at your newborn child, little Richard, and the only thing that really matters is that they're healthy, and your family, despite how insane everyone is, and Alphonse is ungodly annoying, I mean, look, in the grand scheme of shit that can go wrong in the 1860s, everyone's doing relatively well. And that's where we should finish this episode. It's the right note to leave on while we have it, while things are good. Because if we've learned anything throughout this show, it's that happy and healthy don't last forever. Thank you so much for listening and for supporting the show, Patreon, reviews, telling friends and coworkers, although the coworker thing might be dangerous. Um, just thank you for everything. I know I've said this before, but... The show doesn't happen without the audience, and I love the fact that it's going to be the audience that drives things moving forward. You all are the best, and um, yeah, that's it. Take care, be safe, uh, don't have sex with your cousin, um, and uh, I'll talk to you soon. <laughs>